This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 474 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Steve Brown. Now, Steve was a member of the elite pathfinders in the British Army and was deployed all over the world. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his challenging early life to his journey in and through the military, struggling with transitioning out, his own mental health journey, and so much more. And what makes stories like this so powerful is they are coming from men and women who we have this facade are the elites, the alphas, the, the ones that are doing just fine. And when we hear that any of these operators, any of these firefighters, law enforcement officers, soldiers are human beings and they go through the same struggles as anyone else, it really humanizes members of the military and other tactical spaces. And that's exactly what we need to hear. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it more and more visible and therefore easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 474 episodes now. And all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Steve Brown. Enjoy.
Steve, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you, mate. You're welcome. I want to say thank you to Will for uh, connecting us. Uh, we go way back to St. Mark's School. Um, he's a good, good bloke. And uh, yeah, he's been on here. His, uh, your mutual friend, John Hudson, has been on here. So it's cool to get another Brit from the seer background. And you know, obviously your story is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, both good blokes, mate. Very good friends of mine. Yeah, both great blokes. All right. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Today? Well, I live in Wadebridge in Cornwall, in the southwest of England. Um, really beautiful part of the country. Nice and quiet. Keeps me out of trouble. But yeah, down in Cornwall. Sunny Cornwall. Beautiful. So starting chronologically at the very beginning, you, you wrote a very... Um, a very... I would call it courageous book, because obviously it details some of your... Your time in the military, it definitely doesn't put it in a way that's kind of, you know, self-worship. It's very, very honest and very transparent. But, you know, you're very honest about the the mental health stuff, too. And on this show, it's amazing how many people in uniform actually had a, a rough element to their childhood. They brought trauma into the job. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. I was born in... I was born in uh, Salisbury in Wiltshire. Never lived there, though. I lived in the first sort of, seven years in Andover um, in a, in a, on a council estate, but probably like yourself. Back back then, it didn't really mean a great deal. Everyone lived on council estates, really. But you know, it probably was fair, a fairly rough area. I know it is renowned as being rough these days. My, uh, my mum brought us up, me and my brother. He's two years older than me. Um, my dad... And my mum split up when I was I was about six months old. So um, yeah, my mum brought me and my brother up, and we spent our first seven years in in um, in Andover. Yeah, and then we moved on. When I was seven, we moved to uh, Surrey, a place called Hazelmere in Surrey, and we lived there for a couple of years. And then we moved on again to a place called Aylesbury in uh, Buckinghamshire. That's where I kind of spent the rest of my childhood, really, into adulthood, and then I joined the army from there. Right. So with with the book itself, you talk about um, there's obviously a very powerful moment in your life where you almost uh, this the thing I talk about a lot, the inability to save, the inability to protect your mum. You were a young kid. You see her receiving domestic abuse from her then boyfriend. So kind of walk me through the dynamic and, and you know, some of the, the negative influences as you were growing up from the men, you know, the, the supposed, supposed father figures that you were around. <clears throat> I don't think I really realised that I'd um, I'd been affected by sort of I suppose you, I suppose you call it domestic violence until I was an adult. I was probably in my I was probably well in my twenties, and I remember coming back to wherever I was living. I think my wife was was there. I'd been out. I was really drunk, and was, uh, and I just got really upset, and I was crying, like sobbing. Which I don't think I'd ever done before. But I was crying my eyes out, uh, telling my wife about how I couldn't protect my mum, and I was really upset and all that, you know. And um, yeah, it was just really, really strange because it just came out of the blue, really. And, and um, that's kind of the, my first recollection of, of realizing that I was affected by it. But yeah, that's because when when I was really young, I don't know how how old exactly, probably five or something like that. My mum had a boyfriend who was. Apparently he was a good guy, you know. Until he started taking some drugs, I don't know what they were. He took some drugs, and then he went, uh, he went off the rails. And he used to, you know, he, we used to, we used to hear him slapping my mum around and stuff. 
you know, and we were just too little. We'd try and stop him, but he obviously just palm us off, really. We were just, just little boys. And, you know, my mum didn't ever wanted us uh, to get involved. She, she was always trying to protect us anyway. You know, and she'd try probably, she'd probably trying to keep the noise down while she's getting beaten up, to be fair. Um, but yeah, we'd run in and try and stop him. And one of my earliest memories is seeing my brother getting thrown against the wall and hitting the wall upside down. And, but like I think I say it in the book, you know, I don't actually know if that's a real memory or whether that's from a nightmare. But it's quite vivid, you know. It's quite vivid. Yeah, another another part of the book, and obviously we'll we'll move on from here. But I think it's important that you know we discuss these childhood elements because they do factor in so much to mental health as we start getting older. But there seems to be an element as well of you feeling like your actual dad wasn't there to protect you, wasn't there in that that man role, that father role. So what about that part? Yeah, you know, again, that's something I've kind of learned as I thought about more as I've got older. Um, I think psychotherapy kind of got me looking into my childhood. So I can kind of, it's a little, I can, I'll probably go a little bit tangent, but my psychotherapist that I saw for about five years through the military, she was, I mean, she was really good, but she, I, she used to, I felt at one point she was dwelling too much on, on childhood and I, I just wanted to move on from it. And I said to her, listen, I don't think I've had a bad childhood. I want to be straight up to you. I, I don't think we need to keep talking about it. I didn't have a rough childhood. My childhood was no worse than anybody else's. Can we move on? And she said some, something like, okay. And she said, uh, so do you think it's normal, uh, a normal childhood when uh, there's a, dr- a, a, a drug addict beating up the, the mother in the house? I said, no. She said, do you think it's normal that um, – someone murders your dog, takes your dog out and, for a walk and then kills it. I said, no. And she says, you know, do you think it's normal that you got chased uh, by a man in a car uh, who rammed your car while you were in it? And I said, no. And I was like, okay, yeah, I get your point. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And I thought, okay, let's just accept it. You know, I, I, there were some, uh, some, um, some bad times. You know, not my mum's fault. But yeah, there were some dodgy circumstances, and and that's when I've kind of realised really during that therapy. But yeah, I, I, I didn't not I wasn't resentful, but I just thought I, as a father, I could never let my children. I mean, I'm I'm obviously affected by that that man's actions now, and I'm obviously what I mean. Look at me, thirty th- over thirty years old. Well, so I'm forty six years old, right? And it still bothers me now. You know, I still get emotional thinking about that 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 bloke and what he did to us. But I just, as a parent, and as I've got older, you know, I, that just never happened to my children. Never. You know, I, I would, I'd do anything, and I don't care what the consequences are. You know, there's nothing I wouldn't do. You can think the most disgusting, horrendous, violent thing that one man could do to another. I'd do that and a lot more if anyone ever threatened or hurt my children. You know, and I, I approached my own dad about about these things, you know, and I just try and find out really because I, I never lived with him. I don't, you know, we've always got on well. We used to really get on, get on at least. Um, we don't talk anymore. But you know, I tried to just ask him and trying to find out why. You know, just during my therapy, and I and I was straight up with him and I said, "Listen, you know, I'm going through some psychotherapy, and my psychologist is asking me some deep questions. I don't have the answer to. Maybe you can help me out." Um, you know, and I asked him things like, "What happened to our dog?" But he just got really defensive, and then. Just ended up kind of shouting at me, really, and yeah, really, uh, it was really strange. But then I, I realized, you know, through the psychotherapy, I realized that 
you know, I, I needed a strong father figure. I needed someone like, not necessarily like myself, like, but I'm not saying I'm, a, I'm not saying I'm the best father, but I needed someone who was prepared to defend their children like I would defend mine. Um, and as far as I'm aware, and as far as I can, as far as I can ascertain from conversations with him, he, he wasn't that man. Maybe he's not violent. Maybe he's. I'd rather he just said, you know what, I, I'm not a fighter. I was scared, or, or something like that. You know, I'd rather take that. So okay, that's fair enough. You know, and not everyone's not everyone's cut out to be uh, violent or aggressive. Or I'll take that, but to just sort of turn it around and then start having a go at me. You know, I, I, I couldn't really take that. But yeah, I've kind of gone off track. And, uh, almost forgotten your question, original question, to be fair. But no, you yeah, answered I, it. You answered it. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, but I mean, so so this is this is what we see over and over and over again, though. Is I think the people that we see going to military, police, fire that have had that kind of background, they they want that domino effect to stop you know there are some households where the addicts parents were an addict and their parents were addicts you know what i mean and it just the cycle continues and there's i think a lot of the men and women that we stand alongside are the ones that say no enough is enough and i think there's a part of our profession that also draws us in because the excitement of what we do fills that void too so if you're not addressing it when you're young it can be a dangerous thing that then you know kind of ticking time bomb later in our career but yeah, and as you become a protector, you become more and more, I think you become more and more disgusted at the predators or the cowards of the world. And I'm not saying I'm some fucking action hero because I'm not, but yeah, I mean, you know, the there's, there's an irony because when people are unkind, it makes me angry, which sounds like a paradox. But yeah, when I see someone acting like an asshole, I want to punch him in the face. <laughs> not very uh, Buddhist, but you know, it's, it is. You, I think you you a don't want anyone else to get hurt and b as a parent you realize well i can start the next generation of kind compassionate kids by actually being a decent father yeah yeah great i understand what you're saying about kind of history repeating as well is you know my my brother doesn't doesn't communicate with his son you know and that's that's pretty hard to deal with because my you know my uh my dad doesn't communicate with me or my brother my brother's kind of you know he's he's continued in that vein really so it's quite sad to see really i don't think he speaks to his son ever well, none of us even know where he lives or anything so including his own son you know so it's um it's it's, it's quite shocking to see that happen again you know you know kind of makes me think well, i'm not that's not happening in my family you know to, to, to the best of my ability i won't let that happen you know, me and my kids. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know one of the sports that you played when you were young was martial arts. So as something I did, I know 100% that the reason I got into it is because I was tiny and felt, um, you know, vulnerable. And it definitely sent me on a on a much more confident path. Um, tell me about how you found martial arts. And, you know, when you look back, was was there an element of that yourself, being able to maybe even subconsciously protect your mother? Yeah, actually, uh, the first class I ever went to was a was a karate class, actually. Yeah, and it's my mum took me and my brother. I haven't thought about this for a long time, actually, for probably years. It just jogged my memory. And we went to a sports hall, and I'm pretty sure that was in a, while we were in Andover. And this was a, so this was when my mum was probably getting uh, getting uh, physically abused by this bloke. Um, and we went to a couple of I don't know how many, but I remember going to a couple of karate classes. 
because I remember that the instructor was quite um, quite full on, and it was a judo class going on at the other end of the sports hall. And I remember him kind of mocking the judo players, so, you know, look at that, them, them idiots hugging each other or something. You know, and he was quite quite anti judo, and very much about you know karate and how how it was much better in his opinion. Um, but that was I would so I would have been about well I would have been. Uh, younger than seven because I left there by seven, and then um, I don't think that went on for too long. We probably couldn't afford it. To be fair, you know, we were pretty poor when when I was young. We were we were uh, we were pretty poor, but then I um, I started doing taekwondo and we moved to um, Aylesbury. Um, I did that for a couple of years, and I really wish I'd kept that up actually because what but what happened was I I was doing knock and run at my headmaster's house one night who lived not too far from me. And I ran, I ran, uh, I knocked on his door, ran away, jumped over to the small wall at the front of his garden. But above the small wall was a branch, horizontal branch. And I smacked my head on that as I jumped the wall. It went backwards, smashed the back of my head off the wall. And I was knocked out for a little bit. But anyway, that stuck, that prevented me going training for a couple of weeks. And then I just never went again. And something I always regretted, you know? I always regret that. I don't know why I just felt like I'd, I'd been out of it for probably a few weeks while I had the stitches healing and stuff, you know, concussion, and then I never went back. But then I did. So I did a, few, a couple of other martial arts. I had a friend who did uh, kung fu and kickboxing. Um, I've got a couple of friends who are really, really successful martial arts actually. You know, that I used to train with as a kid, and um, you know, I used to train with them. And then I didn't. But when I joined the army, I didn't do any martial arts for a long time. It just wasn't time, or it wasn't really going on anywhere in the military at the time. I just, you know, just the odd bit of shadow boxing and bag work. Um, but yeah, and then I got into mixed martial arts when I, after I left the Pathfinder. So the Pathfinder was so busy and my time there was just so, so crazy busy. I, I didn't have time to do anything. But, um, when I, when I, I got posted out, uh, I went to the Sears school, the survival school. Uh, it was a lot calmer and I found a mixed martial arts club in uh, Gospel, South Coast of South Coast Submissions. And that was a really, really good place to train. Um, and I started doing MMA there, and that's where I got got into grappling for the first time and submissions. And, yeah, and, and that's what I, that's what I focus on now. Really, that's that's, that's what I like. I enjoy the most anyway. <clears throat> Beautiful. Well, you mentioned the military. Obviously, that's a huge part of your career, you know, path. So, when you were in school age, like, what were you dreaming of? Was it the military back then, or was it something else? Yeah, I didn't really know when I was at school. I mean, I, I always in, I always thought about the military. It was always uh, something I thought about. I wasn't kind of army barmy. My wife says because um, my my wife and I went to school together. And she says to me now, like everyone, everyone always knew you were going to join the army. I find that quite strange because I, I didn't, you know, I don't remember knowing myself that I was going to join the army when I was that age. But, you know, I was, I was, I was fairly level headed up until the last sort of couple of years in school. Um, but then I went off the rails and I, I wasn't really thinking about anything. You know, I was thinking about what, what I could steal, where I could break into in the, in the evening and things like that. But um, no, as a young kid, I wasn't, <clears throat> I wasn't really thinking about any, uh, any career, to be fair. I ended up leaving it. When I left school, I ended up uh, bricklaying for, well, labouring on a, brick, a building site for nearly two years. Now, what, what made you kind of go towards the path of theft and breaking and entering? <clears throat> I don't know, to be honest. I, I, I don't know. I think it was just to get some money. And I can't even remember the first, I think the first time I, I really stole stuff was someone left a building open and I, I kind of went inside, 
saw some. Uh, I don't want to don't incriminate myself. <laughs> some <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> yeah, saw some stuff, and um, yeah, I thought oh, I reckon I could sell that, so I just sort of grabbed it. I did sell it, and then yeah, I just you know what I needed. What I know now that I need what I needed was was a slap around the head from a good strong father figure, like, as in you know, as actual slap around the head. I had a stepdad who was um, he was a, he was a good guy, but we really didn't get on at all. As when I was a kid, no, he was a nice boat, you know, not violent, nothing like that. <clears throat> but we were, we were very different people, and um, you know, my mum's a very strong character, and I don't think she would have let him anyway sort of take on too much of a father role, disciplinarian role anyway. Um, but that's what I needed. That's what I definitely needed was a, a slap. Just get me on straight and narrow. Good strong role model. Um, but yeah, that was kind of I guess I could, that's, that's me blaming someone else. I don't know. Too. I don't know what what it was really that sent me off the rails. But you know, I was drinking, I was smoking uh, weed, and you know, I just went off the rails for a couple of years. I don't really did. I don't really regret it, to be honest. It kind of shaped me, and it kind of informed me of what you know, sort of showed me the other side. Um, so I don't actually really regret much of what I did, but I wouldn't want my kid to do it. Yeah, I'd give him a slap round the head. He knows that as well. You know, he will get a slap round the head if he if he turns out the way I was turning out. Yeah, he'll get he'll, he'll get stopped in his tracks. Well, you mentioned the mentor. That seems to be another thing that's very important, especially when you haven't had two strong parents. Um, you know, growing up, were there any people in your journey prior to the military that that was some sort of mentor figure? Yeah, so it's actually I uh, I spoke to a bloke the other day. He's one of the short. I think it's like a one-pager in my book. Uh, best, best advice ever. It's my friend's, my friend who was a, who was a really good kickboxer and nunchucker specialist as a, as a youngster. His dad is called Brian Downer, and this bloke is just uh, to me, he's just like the, the alpha male, old school, you know, hard as fuck. Don't mess with him. You know, he used to work the doors and stuff like that. And I remember hearing a story about him throwing someone over a car, not not into a car. <laughs> he's not massive, you know, he's not tall. He's probably, he's, I'm sure he's shorter than me. He's probably five foot ten, something like five foot nine, five foot ten. Well built, old school well built. You know, and he, he threw, someone was gobbing off to him and he threw them, but they were, apparently they cleared the car completely, all the way over it. It's hard to imagine, but, yeah, he was an ex-sort of power lifter. Back in the day, he used, to, he used to lend me weights, show me running routes. Uh, he even built there's a trim trail in Wendover Woods, just outside Aylesbury. <clears throat> him and a, him and a mate of his built probably must be thirty years ago. Or so it's all made of wood, you know, zigzags, and it's got like logs for shoulder press and sit up stations and chin up bars. And that's been there for years and years. And I'm pretty sure it was just him plus one other went out and built that. Um, yeah, he was just a mega bloke. And I actually spoke to him the other day. Um, you know, and he's, he's amazing. He's he's um he's he's a guy. Uh, uh, it's something I'll never forget, and I, I've repeated it so many times to other people. Uh, but his his words to me were, "There's always a flaw." You know, when you when you've got no because everyone's got an excuse not to train. I've been in the army for a while. He could see I'd you know I was, I was very fit. I'd lost a bit of weight. I lost a lot of weight when I was going through training. You know, I was not, I wasn't a big lad at the start. But I was you know lost about a stone and a half in that six months of basic training, and then um. Yeah, this guy Brian said to me, you know, have you not been doing your weights and all that? And I said, uh, no, I've been doing it. I, I, haven't had ch- I haven't had a chance, Brian. I said, uh, I haven't had a chance to get to the gym. And it, it was just, I can still see him now. He's kind of looking at me and just like, 
you know, as if, and I just felt ashamed pretty much. And he said, there's always a flaw, Steve. There's always a flaw. You know, and I just think, yeah, there is. A, and I, I, I live by that, you know, there's always a flaw. You can always do 10 press up, 20 press up, you know, you can always do some sit ups. If you haven't got a flaw, you're probably, where are you? You're in, you're in space. And then, uh, <laughs> Probably live, live in space for a bit and not and get away with it. You've probably got an excuse. Yeah, I was busy being an astronaut. Outside of that, it's just always a flaw, mate. You know, you can't argue with it. I just thought, yeah, brilliant. Best advice ever. Absolutely best advice ever. So even when I don't train or if I'm being lazy, I'm like, no, I'm being lazy. You know, if someone says, have you trained? Have you trained? And I'm like, no, I haven't trained. Why not? I'm like, because I'm being lazy. That's it. You know, because there's, there's a flaw. I think you know, he would. Yeah, your question was about mental. Mental. That was him, mate. Yeah, as a kid, and I was like, fucking look, he's, you know, he just, he just seems super nails. Old school Yorkshireman from Castleford. Yeah, he'd worked in a coal pit or the mine. You're down the mines. You've done all the all the hard, uh, old school hard as fuck jobs. Yeah, he was just, you know, and I still look up to him now. Last time I saw him, actually. I, I, I saw him probably it was before lockdown, maybe two years, year and a half, two years ago. I knocked on the door. He opened the door and he's had um, mouth cancer. And as soon as he started speaking, I could see. I thought at first, thought maybe he'd been on the, been on the lash, you know. His, his speech was a little bit slurred. But he's, uh, yeah, he's had mouth cancer. I think he'd had a chunk of his tongue cut out or something like that. But yeah, he's still, a, still amazing. You know, still a, a, a really force to be reckoned with, you know. Beautiful. Well, it's such a such an important story to hear. You know what I mean? Because we can't dictate if someone had a shitty childhood unless you're the parent. But we can definitely be someone in the community that might end up inadvertently being that mental figure if you're actually looking out and, and walking the walk yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he didn't do that. I don't think he did that intentionally. He certainly didn't do it for any sort of payback. Um. Yeah, I know mean, he's he's uh, he he. I think he bought my book. No, I think I sent no. I I, I sent him a copy. I bought a copy because I was you know, obviously in Kindle. You don't get anything for free yourself. I got I got a copy and I sent it to him. I saw, that's why I signed it and then I sent it to him. Um, yeah, he didn't he didn't set out to be a mentor. Yeah, I like I think mentors are really really important in the military. Uh, you know, one of my jobs was was mentoring the instructors and you know, as, as I went through the ranks in you know, the last jobs, you know, and I think it's a really important job. Really important, but probably not. Probably quite not quite as well recognised as it should be for a lot of, a lot of people. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Well, let's talk about your journey then. So you were helping bricklaying. You were doing a little B and E. So how did that end up becoming walking through a recruiter's door and then kind of walk us through from there through, you know, the first year or so of training. <laughs> Yeah, so I actually wanted to join the army a bit earlier, but I, I, I was in trouble with the police. I got I got arrested. I got charged. I I, 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 um, I went to court. The judge was lenient with me because you know my lawyer or solicitor said you know, this this guy uh, this lad wants to turn it around and join the army. You know, and I it was on my mind, but I definitely overplayed that one because I thought you know the solicitor was like this this could go in your favour. Yeah, I wasn't full on committed to joining the military at the time. It was just, a, it was something I was considering. Um, but that, the judge was like, look, I don't want to ruin a career, a chance for a career for this bloke in the military. So I'm going to be lenient. I'm going to give you a 12 month conditional discharge. 
which is as barbecue as you could get. Let him also meant I couldn't join the army for another 12 months because I'd have a criminal record for 12 months. So I joined, uh, I ended up bricklaying and well, more labouring on, on a building site. It was it was rubbish. And the way the blokes treated me, the two guys I worked for, they were, they were horrible, really. They weren't nice people at all. Uh, they didn't like me for some reason. You know, I think maybe I was too quiet. I don't know. They only ever spoke to me when it was just one of them. But when both of them were on site together, they just ignored me. And, you know, I really, I used to, I used to fantasize about loosening the scaffolding and like, smacking them around the head with the shovels and stuff. You know, when I, I, I really, I really did not enjoy that. Um, but when the time came, you know, when my, my sentence was up, I went to the careers office, you know, because by then, by that point, I had decided, like, I, I want to join the army. I, you know, got, uh, I'd been looking at posters and reading books about the paras and, and the marines. Um, yeah, and I went in the careers office and I said to this guy, um, you know, I, I, I want to join the army. And he, he was like, uh, okay. And I said, uh, he said, what, what is it you're thinking of? And I was pretty sure I said, I don't, you know, all, all I knew, I didn't know anything about the military, really. I just said, oh, I don't know. I think it'd probably, probably be the paras or the marines. And he said, well, if you want to join the, if you want to join the paras, that's army, you'll talk to me. He said, if you want to join the marines there in the navy, you talk to him. And he pointed to this guy in like an ice cream, uh, salesman's suit, you know, an ice cream man's suit, uh, white suit and very, well, it looked a little bit, um, it didn't look very cool. And I was just like, Okay, all right, definitely not then. So I was like, yeah, I got chatting to this bloke. He tried to recruit me into his regiment, which was the uh, Royal Green Jackets. You know, he's quite insistent that you know they could do everything the Paris could do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, and I said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll have a thing. Shit, man, I don't want to offend this bloke, but you know, I really want to. I just want to join the Paris. Um, yeah, and the first thing they do actually on that first first session, guys, you know, can you do? Uh, can you do ten chin ups? I said, I don't know. Yeah, I'm thinking. All I remember is like every kid does. I remember doing a lot. A thousand chin-ups, you know, when I was a kid on the climbing frame. And I thought, ten chin-ups is a piece of piss. Yeah, I, know, yeah, I reckon. And uh, he's like, well, you go then. And there was a chin-up bar and a skylight. So I, I went up. And I, did t- I did ten chin-ups, but I, I remember it. it was a lot harder than I remembered. And um, fucking, I need to work on that. Um, but it was kind of like the basic, the first physical standard, I, you know, I was, I was sort of given. And then yeah, I went from there, and it took quite it took a good while. I've still got all my uh, all my documentation still actually from from back then. So that was in 1992. I've got all my original letters and, and everything um, from the careers office. And then uh, yeah, I got I got given a place. So that was yeah October 92. I got given a place on a, on a course called PRAC, P R A C, Potential Recruit Aptitude Course. And that was running Aldershot, the old depot para Browning Barracks depot uh, depot para Aldershot. Uh, and that was over two days, two or three days. Two, I think. Nah. Yeah, when I did that, there was 21 of us starting that. Only seven of us passed that. That was a, that was a good beast in. And a good eye-opener. All power, it was just Power Edge, folks. And I remember sitting on the train after I passed that. I'm sitting on the train going back to Aldersbury. And I just felt really, I felt really, really proud of myself. You know, and that was hard, you know. It was, it was hard. Loads of people failed. You know, one, two-thirds failed. And yeah, and I thought this is a, that feeling was great. And I thought I, I want more of that. And then I, I got my depot joining update, um, which was originally was 26th of April, 1993. So it's quite a big wait, six months or so, uh, uh, wait. And then that got delayed. I can't remember why that got delayed till the 31st of May. 
And that's when I started uh, started training. And the depot got moved in that mean in the meantime as well. The depot got moved from Aldershot, where it'd been for a long, long time, uh, to the new well, the new system. Then it's probably changed again now. It's just ten weeks basic training in one place, which was Litchfield, and then four months in another, which was Catterick in North Yorkshire. So yeah, that's how it all started, mate. You know. Now, obviously, Paras are you know known as one of the you know, elite organizations. So you, you did some martial arts, you know, you did, you, there was a physical component to your background. You had, you know, some rough times as a kid. When you look back now, physically and or mentally, what were some of the attributes that allowed you to pass through all that selection when so many people failed? That's a good question. But I was pretty fit, you know, and I've, um, I was fit relatively. Uh, I, I always done fitness, pretty much on and off, on and off, but more on, especially with the martial arts. I mean, I used to train when I was doing the martial arts. I train sometimes. I do five hours a day in my school day because I'd, be, I'd do an hour of stretching, I'd do an hour of weights, I'd do an hour of running. I'd just be training all the time. My bedroom was just a, a dojo basically for quite a while. And um, you know, I ended up getting rid of my bed and everything just because so, the bed was taking up too much space. I got, I got rid of it. I went down to a mattress and then I, and eventually I got rid of the mattress because I was joining the army and I thought, yeah, I need to toughen up, man. So I got rid of the mattress and I just slept on the floor on a, on a blanket. So I thought, you know, I need to get, I need to toughen up um, and, and get myself ready. Um, but yeah, I think that the main thing for me was, uh, was seeing these blokes. So I used to kind of look up to like one of my best friend's brother was a bit of a criminal. You know, he used to sell stuff for us with stolen stuff like this. He used to give us free drugs and crazy shit, really, and take us in these like illegal um, nightclubs and stuff. You know, where all the, all the gangsters, so-called, were. Um, so all the people I looked up to were all petty criminals or local tough guys. Or, you know, fucking idiots, really. I went to I I joined the army, and these guys were like, I was like, what the actual fuck, man? I was like, these blokes, are next level. You know, honestly, I was just absolutely awestruck, really, what a corporal's, the parachute regiment corporal's. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, we went for this run on that practice, that two-day uh, course. We went for this run, and this guy, I'm pretty sure he's, I know, his name, his name was Corporal Mansfield, right? This, and this was in 1992. I remember his name. He made such an impact on me. We did this run. We were in shorts and T-shirts. It was a mile out and a mile back. This bloke on the way back, he fucking came flying past me. He was in boots, uh, denim denim trousers, and the old uh, green denim trousers, and a t-shirt. And he fucking sprinted past me, and he didn't look fit. You know, he didn't look. He wasn't lean. He was like your normal bloke down the pub. He wasn't overweight, but he didn't look. He didn't look like an athlete. And this bloke fucking went flying past me, and I just thought, how the fuck is he doing that? And he didn't seem to be breathing. He's just like, come on, keep up with me, or something like that. As he went past. And I was just like, what? And I was just, everything these blokes did, I was just like, that's amazing. That's amazing. He's nailed. He's mad. You know, it, it's just like, these blokes are awesome. You know, and I think that's what it was, to be honest. I just wanted to be like them. And I realised that people I was looking up to up until that point, they were nobodies, really. Uh, and, I, you know, they were, I don't even know why I, I would have been looking up to them. You know, probably because they had a bit of cash. People said they were hard or something like that. But, you know, Actually, real hard people don't go around saying they're hard. They just they just are hard. You know, it was like it was just a new level, mate. 
I think I think that's what it was. You know, being being around these, just, just, I was thinking, you know, I do this two day course and probably met four or five of these paratroopers, and but I know out there there's like another two thousand of these people, two thousand more of these lot. I want to be one of them. I want to be in that gang, you know. And I think that was really, really what it was. I want to be part of that. You know, I've not, I've never been. I've always been, I've always been quite fit. So I've always been in the top, you know, whatever platoon I've been in, I've always been one of the fit ones. I've never been the fittest or strongest. But, you know, I I really wanted to be like those blokes. That that was it really, mate. I think that's what helped me, uh, what got me through it more than anything else. More than any sort of physical physical attribute. It was more sort of what I want and need. See, that's such a powerful perspective as well something i talk about a lot i've got a friend here and i talk about what he's done he's a local firefighter and he started a mentor program um and is free for any kid that shows up you know what i mean so it doesn't matter if you're rich poor black white gay straight whatever as long as you can show up to this you know central location they'll give you the gear they'll give you the training and there's even like scholarships of fire academy and everything and you saying that your role model before with the shit bags, and you know, we all know exactly who you're talking about. You know, we've all got them in our communities. If you can just put positive role models in the same communities, we can absolutely steer these kids. And what I'm getting from your story is that here's a young lad that had the potential of being a para, of being a seer instructor, of being, you know, a man who sees combat all over the world. And all it took was putting the right person in front of you. Or, I mean, you, know, you ended up finding the right person, but even so, you know, you found yourself in front of them. So that's such a powerful story because it just shows if we can, A, reduce the power that the underworld has. So, you know, one of the things I talk about is, well, let's not make drugs illegal in the fucking first place so we don't give the criminals all the power and the money. That's a separate conversation. But, you know, and then police, fire, military, whatever, you know, trade schools show these young kids, no. Gangs, drugs, violence, that's not your only fucking option. You can go and do something you will be so proud of when you look in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I did a little bit of mentoring as a, I left the army last year. I did a little bit of mentoring with like uh, a kid from the school that, next to the sports center I was working at. You know, and that was good. And after a few weeks, you know, he was, he was opening up to me a lot. I never dug for any information or anything like that. He was a really good lad. And then, um, it's quite interesting because after a few weeks, he was telling me that he told me that he'd ask his parents if he could join the army. You know, I said, "All oh, right, I said, okay, mate." You know, why is it you're thinking of joining? He's like, "I want to join the Paris." Right, and you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, "Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say you know, I had a that was you know, I was a, a big part of that decision." You know, you know, it's, and I thought that, that was good. You know, I'm thinking good because he's on a slippery slope like I was. You know, and I genuinely think I would have gone to prison when he joined the army. I think I would have gone to prison. You know, and fuck knows, once you're in there, it's, I think it's hard to get out, or, and it's very easy to go back. But um, now, you know, I don't. I joined the army, and I don't. I don't, I don't break laws, you know, any more than you know. Maybe the odd speed speeding uh, limit. But outside of that, you know, I've got, I'm fully respectful. I think the police and the fire service and the, uh, and the ambulance service and all the services. You know, I, I think I think they, you know, they should be treated like heroes. You know, they really do. And you know, I think people should let them in to the front of the queue in a shop. Like they do in America, you know, and I sort of think people, you know, I've been in America loads of times where people have paid my bill for me when I'm sat in a, in a restaurant because I'm in uniform. And I think we should have more of that in the UK, you know, than 
kids should look up to these people more instead of just sort of making them the enemy all the time and you know, always reporting negatively on them. You know, the kids need to understand who who to respect and who to who to look at, who to look to to be the role model. Not some Belland who's fucking spitting every two seconds on the football pitch and shouting at the referee, effing and jeffing. You know, I don't care about him. I, one of my son's friend's dad is a paramedic around here. You know, and I've, I've met, you know, when you've got kids, you meet people on the school run when they're younger. Like, and I chat to him quite a bit. You know, my son was talking to me once. I said, he's a hero. My son was saying something about the army. And I said, I said, to, it's much, it's a much, Better thing to save a life you know, is to take a life. You know, obviously kids are like soldiers. Yeah, you get to shoot people and all that. And maybe you do, maybe you don't. But you know, to shooting someone versus saving someone, someone's life, you know, the, the feeling must be amazing. You know, to be a paramedic, you know, yeah, you know, I know they do uh, that, a lot of that sort of stuff in the, in the fire service, you know, in the fire and rescue in America as well. A lot of sort of life saving stuff like that with the paramedics. And, um, you know, they're the real role models, you know, not, not, not these idiots who just go on about killing them. You know, and, uh, you find a lot of people like that who just, you know, but a lot of the time the kids will ask you, have you ever killed anyone? And I, I would say, well, not, not just kids, you know, adults. So I've been asked that loads of times. So most soldiers is quite a, uh, quite an annoying question. My, my, my take on that is, um, what difference does it make? You know, what, how is it, how is that going to shape your view of me as, as a human? Right. And then people say, I often say, people say, you've killed anyone. I just say, have you ever killed anyone? And then I'm, what, what, what do you mean? This is because it's irrelevant. I don't care. You know, and they shouldn't care either. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything. As in, you know, it doesn't, it's not the mark of the man. It doesn't mean you're a better person or you've done more or less than anyone else if you have or haven't, you know. A weird thing to ask. It's like that—that's the important piece for some people. But they need to be, t- you know, it's just because of the way they've been, you know, they need to be taken out of that mindset. It's like, you know, who's who's more a hero? Him because he killed thirty people in Iraq, or him because he, he saved thirty people, you know, from a burning building or you know from a, a, a massive road accident. You know, I'm always going to be like, well, the bloke is, is, you know, fireman or the or the paramedic or the policeman. They're, you know, they're they're. Don't get me wrong, there's loads of good role models in the army as well. I go, I go tangent again, but it's, um, yeah, I've just gone off on a tangent, mate. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, but it's good. But you're right, though. I, and I think, you know, we all hold ourselves to the same level, which is it's not about, you know, we get asked, you know, well, what's the worst thing you've seen? And sadly, in my mind, it's like, well, fucking which one? You know what I mean? There's a whole Rolodex that's now playing. Thanks for you asking that question. But, um, you know, the reality is that, a lot of our associated professions have stood up and basically said we will put ourselves in harm way, harm's way for strangers. That's what it boils down. Whether you're taking a life, whether you're saving a life, you know, whether you know you're sitting in a dispatch center, whatever it is, there's people out there that are that are leaving their family to do things that are hopefully going to positively affect the world in some way. So you know, I think that's that's what we all kind of have in common. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's. Um... Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine you know, the people who are a paramedic. I watch a lot of the 999 type programs now, you know, 24 hours in A&E. I love all that stuff. Um, but when people, are, when people are dying on the operating table and stuff like that, I just, fucking hell, man, that just must be horrendous. If you're dealing with that day to, day, 
in day out in a hospital. You know, people dying and then question, you know, you're always going to question, is it, could I have done this or could I have done that? I mean, that must just be horrendous. And uh, like I've, you know, I'm quite open about it because I, you know, I'm not ashamed of it. Or I'm, not, obviously I'm not proud of it. I'm, I'm, I'm indifferent. I got diagnosed with PTSD. Initially, I was really dismissive, like, that bollocks, you know, I don't like labels, I'm bullshit. Back in that, plenty of people have done worse things than I have, you know. But once you kind of accept it, it's like, because I kind of got to a point where I'm like, you know, a doctor tells you you've got a broken leg. No one ever argues and says, fuck, I don't think it's broken. So I'm like, thank you very much. Doctor tells you you've got a concussion. Okay, thanks, doc. Doctor tells you you've got PTSD, and you're like, fuck off. You know, I know, I know better than you. I haven't got PTSD, and that's what it was. But then I'm like, hang on, enough people have told me now. Let's just let's move on and deal with it. And I think, well, if I've, you know, if if I've got it, then there must be so many, so many people who've got it. You know, just don't realise. You know, because I've got loads of mates in uh, in the military who said to me, "Oh yeah, it's just bollocks, PTSD. We're just doing our job." And I was disputing that. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah you're just doing your job, but. You know, those thoughts that you're having, they're not normal. You know, and it takes someone to point it out to you, someone who you trust. And, uh, and I was lucky. I eventually got around to two really good psychologists. I see a few psychologists and a few psychiatrists. There was a couple of really good psychologists who I really trusted. You know, and then they can explain it to you that that's not normal. What you're thinking and what you're, you know, how you're reacting, that's that's not normal, mate. And, you know, I have to sit back and think and go, no, okay, fair enough. I think you might be right there. And then you can start addressing it. But these people who, who, you know, dealing with like kids in fires and shit like that, mate. I mean, I've not had to deal with that. Thank fuck. You know, I'd be, I'd be much worse. You know, I don't know how well I'll cope with that. As I say in my book, you know, people say, oh, you know, you've had it worse than me. I couldn't do what you've done. And it's just like, you know, I don't know what you've seen. You don't know what I've seen. You've been a firefighter. It's like, you've probably seen some things that would give me fucking nightmares, mate, you know, if, we're, if I'm honest. And I probably wouldn't be, and maybe I, w- I wouldn't be able to sleep. I'm lucky, even though, you know, one of the main symptoms of PTSD is, is um, not being able to sleep. I, I can sleep. I can sleep. I can sleep on a chicken's lip. I can sleep anywhere. But, you know, something like that, which in a kid, you know, in a fire or something like that, don't know about, I don't know how I'll cope with that. I think it's all very, very relative to the individual. So, you know, something I, I, I might find traumatic, you might think is, you know, walking apart, you know, doesn't bother you at all, and vice versa. You know, just, I think it's really bad that people kind of have to compare all the time. It's like, look, sometimes you just got to fucking accept that you, you, you've got a problem. And that's, and that's a big day when you do that. I, I mean, that's a big day. The day you admit that, it's a very emotional. At that point in time, is very emotional. Um, but you, you know, it helps you. You got then from that point onwards, you can move forward, at least not backwards. Yeah. Well, I think in the common thing again, whether it's what you did, what I did, is it's not normal to see what we see. That's the reality. You know what I mean? Whether you're having to take a life, whether you're seeing one of your friends kill, whether you know you watch an IED go off in front of you, whether it's the the trauma left behind by one of the countries you're in on their own people, whether it's the shit that we see in the wrecks and the fires and the you know, school shootings and all these things, no human's supposed to see that. So it is. You're absolutely right. That kind of mindset is well, I'm fine. I could see more. no. 
you think you are now. Maybe you are because, you know, you're 22 years old and right now you haven't had a lot, you know, you haven't seen a lot yet, so it hasn't caught up with you. But it's not normal to see mutilation. It's not normal to watch one of your friends kill, you know. So if you think that's not going to affect you, it's like being stabbed and thinking you're not going to bleed. Like, you're fucking going to bleed, whether you like it or not. These all take a toll. So if you're not addressing it, if you're not getting those wounds stitched then eventually you're going to be like a freaking colander walking around and you know and then it's you know now you're facing a much bigger um you know issue so absolutely understanding that not only what we see but like you said the sleep sleep deprivation in our profession is horrendous and that's another huge huge contributor that amplifies the mental health effects or mental ill health effects so yeah i mean i agree you comparing trauma is ridiculous there are things that are going to chip away at your psyche and they're going to look different. But if they're if they're chipping away, they're chipping away. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. In traffic, I've written so much stuff down lately. I don't think it's in a book that you've got. I've definitely written it down. But I was sat in traffic in Exeter. We were running a course, an urban evasion course there a few years ago. And I sat with a guy called Marty. He'd been in the army longer than I had. He'd been in about 27, 28 years. At that point, I'd been in like 20 three or something and um i was talking to him anyway and he was saying oh is that right oh, you know you 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 go to the dcmh and the department of clinical mental health and you see a therapist and all that don't you i said yeah that's right mate and he said what is it and i said well you know they they tell me uh, i've got ptsd and i'm on medication and stuff for it and he's like no you know he was like but well, you know why is that why do they why do they come to that conclusion everyone seems to have it these days it was basically quite dismissive, like I, I like I had been previously. And I was like, okay. I said, I said, I think we've all fucking got it to a to a degree, mate. I think you know, loads of loads of both have got it. They just don't realise they've got it. And he said, oh well, I don't. Oh, okay. And then just at that time, there was someone walking. Actually, we're in Exeter, so there's people walking down the street. We've parked a set of lights waiting to move. And there's some guy. So Marty was driving. I was like nearest the pavement and then there was some bloke walking towards us on the pavement not they're walking in our direction not towards our vehicle but just walking along and I looked at that bloke and my mind was always racing 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 and I said to my see that bloke walking towards us now he said, yeah I said are you thinking about how you're going to react if he's fucking tries to get in the door or if he jumps on the bonnet he says yeah I said so am I I said have you thought about what you're going to do to him if he fucking runs around and tries to get you out the car he's like yeah I said, so have I. I said, see that bloke in front of us in that car? You could just see the back of the head of the bloke in front of us. Wait, also waiting at the lights. I said, see that bloke in front of us? Yeah. Do you think he's thinking that? I said, do you think that he's thinking about how he's going to smash that bloke's fucking head if he pulls a knife out on him? I said, well, do you think he's just sitting there listening to the radio, enjoying the music, and hasn't even noticed that bloke? And he was like, oh, right. I said, it's not fucking normal, mate. The way we're thinking isn't normal. I said, you know, you've, because we're always together, you know, it's like-minded people. You don't realise it's not normal because all the blokes are fucking slightly crackers, you know. They've all got, well, not all of them, a lot of them. You know, especially when you're with your own peer group or your own age group that have been on similar tours, etc. And, you know, and I said to him, it's not fucking normal, mate. It's not normal. But I'd, I'd have guys kind of been awoken to it by their name, and he, and he hadn't. And I don't know where he sits with it now, but you know, I, I'd, I'd been kind of um, educated on it, you know. So, but that's what my brain was used to be like, especially before medication. 
It was non-stop. It was all day. It was all day, every day. Whenever I'm out, I'm just thinking, thinking, kill, kill. This this bloke's going to attack me. What if he attacks me? What if he attacks me? You know, what if they do this? What if a bomb goes off? What if someone starts screaming? You know, what if someone spits on my kid? What if someone tells my missus to fuck off? What if they shoulder barge me? What am I going to do? And it's it's every single people can't imagine it. I don't think you don't think like that. It's probably really hard to imagine because it's constant. I don't know about if you've, if like hypervigilance is, is the name you give to it. And it's like I'm, I was always thinking, someone attacks me or my kids now. And it's like everyone is a credible threat. So I see a kid, I'm not, not interested. I see, I see a woman, you know, but the average woman working in sexist, not interested. Not a threat to me, not a threat to me. Anyone who's a possible threat, I should be thinking about how I'm going to defend myself and my family and how far I'm prepared to go. And it always ends up is, am I prepared to kill them? Because they, once I start attacking them, how far are they prepared to go? They, if they've got a knife, I'm going to fucking take that knife off them and I'm going to stick it in their throat because they were trying to stab me. So then I think, well, that's now me. I've, now I've killed them. But actually, the catalyst might have just been that they bumped into my kid on the on a bridge, on a narrow bridge. And I said, oh, he's fucking, you know, they say excuse me or something. And they've gone, what are you going to do about it? And then it just escalates. But imagine that going on. It's, honestly, mate, I didn't realise at the time until I started taking medication. It's so draining. It's so psychologically exhausting. It's like thinking about being killed or killing other people all day, every day. You know, and I don't I don't say it to make it sound like I don't think it's big and clever at all. I don't think it's funny. I just think it's it's the people don't it's just hard to understand it. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. I don't think of that now. You know, I have my moments, but that's why I won't come off medication. I dread to I dread to come off medication. We see, and it's it's interesting because from my profession, we have a, the same thing, but a slightly different lens. Where it's more like, all right, you're in a building where are the fire exits. You know, what's the roof made of? Are there sprinklers? You know, I mean, and I I got caught in my son's school during what they call a code red, where they thought there actually was a shooter. And I'm thinking about ripping the guillotine handle off so I can use it as a machete. If, you know, I mean, it's just, but that's, there's a middle ground that's good. Like, as you know, you can be a complete sheep and just be executed in the middle of the street because you didn't realize something was coming around. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think people understand when you're surrounded by that. That's your profession. Now, you guys obviously are, people are actively trying to kill you. In us, it's more like inadvertent, whether it's, you know, God forbid, a, a shooting or whether it's more like a, in a fire or getting nailed by a semi on the side of the road while we're working a wreck. I mean, there's there's you know, a lot more um, kind of um, negligent um, reasons that we can die. But yeah, you, you your head's on a swivel. So absolutely, I'm sure a lot of the fire and EMS can relate to that. And obviously, the, the, the law enforcement side can definitely relate to that. But I mean that, you know, I have I have a gun in my car, you know, I have, but I also have a tourniquet and a, you know, a mask to do mouth to mouth and, you know, all these things. Because I'm thinking, you know, obviously the, the defense side, but also, you know, what if I come across that burning car upside down? Well, I have a window punch and I have something to cut a seatbelt, you know, but don't think that normal people <laughs> think like that. And it's good. You're, you know, you're a sheepdog, as, as they like to say. But at the yeah. same time, that can definitely become too much and it's like really understanding like you don't have to be completely clueless but yeah if you're constantly thinking you can't switch that off and you want to sit with your back to the wall in every restaurant every cafe that you go to that's definitely a, a red flag too yeah absolutely 
Yeah, it's um, like my, my psychologist, the one I've spent the most time with, um, I don't know really want to suppose I should say her name, but uh, she's called Jackie anyway. She's, um, Jackie was um, saying to me before about how, you know, it's not like exactly what you're saying, James. It's, it's not all negative because actually that hypervigilance, for all I know, has, has saved, you know, my life or even on blokes in my team's life before you just don't know, do you? You don't know what, what could have happened or what didn't happen. You think, actually, you know, I was quite successful really on um, like military terms-wise. You know, took a, we had a, a couple of casualties, but uh, it could have been a lot worse. And maybe it would have been worse if people weren't so hypervigilant, you know? Because you're always looking for trouble. And she explained to me about how when you're scanning, like the, the normal human being is kind of constantly scanning and assessing so safe, dangerous, life-threatening. She's like, safe, dangerous, life-threatening. She's saying this process is, is normal, and that's how we go around our life. It's like, you know, sort of a basic survival kind of mechanism in our brain. But she says, um, she was saying, my problem was, I don't I don't even register or acknowledge the safe. You know, you, you know you're not, all you see is danger, life-threatening, danger, life-threatening, 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 dangerous, dangerous. And it's like, you know, it, it made sense to me the way she explained it. And then, you know, and, and since then, I've kind of think, like, I, I've loads of times I've just bumped into people, like, but they're right in my face. People I know. And they're like, didn't you see me? And I'm like, <laughs> sorry, mate, I daydreaming or whatever. But I think maybe I just didn't register them because, they, you know, they didn't register as a threat. You know, just too busy looking for threats, you know, and then they're just in the periphery. Just too busy looking for you know bad people and friends and you know and, and good things just don't really register. But you know, maybe maybe not. I, I don't know. You know. It definitely makes sense when you're hyper vigilant. That's definitely what's, that's definitely what's going on. It's threat. Everything's a threat. I think the first time I realised that the uh, my medica first medication I ever got put on was called sertraline, and then. Um, you know, I, I had a friend who was, who was taking it and he said it was really good. And, and I said, how, you know, how does it feel? And he said, uh, well, to be honest, mate, he doesn't really feel anything. Um, he just kind of realised that you're not feeling something. Okay. And then I had that actual uh, realisation first time. Uh, I used to live uh, not far from here on a, on a steep hill. My kids are running down the road on the pavement. They're running down this steep hill. And I remember being conscious that I wasn't thinking they were going to either get run over by a car, reverse and out of its drive, or fall over and smash their faces. I wasn't picturing all these scenarios where they would smash, you know, break their faces along the pavement and you know, lose their teeth. My brain wasn't you know, processing all these thoughts. And I thought, fuck, man, I think that must be this drug. Because I was actually just looking at them running and thinking, oh, look at them running, you know, that, they look like they're having fun. That's actually what I thought, rather than they're going to get run over, they're going to fall over, they're going to get hurt. And that's the first time I realised, I think, the medication was, um, was working, working for me. See, that's interesting because I think about it all the time. My son's he has an electric longboard, and it's the same thing. I'm like, watch out for watch out for brake lights, watch out for reverse lights, you know, because, I mean, you know, and it's, again, it's not completely obsessive. But I think that the amount of times that we think about stuff like that is probably, you know, a thousand times more than the average person. And sometimes that complacency does end up with the kid getting killed. So there's a there's a real, you know, concern behind it. But yeah, where is that median between 
educating your children not to be completely blasé and making them anxious the rest of their life for that everything in the world is trying to kill them. Yeah, and that is difficult. It's finding that balance. Uh, I, you know, I think you know a lot. A lot of me uh, grateful to medication, which helped definitely helped me find that balance. Puts me into that into that that state. I'm not constantly thinking about violent or uh, drastic outcomes, you know. But um, it is there is a point. I totally agree with you. You can't just you can't be like these people who don't who don't give a monkeys and they don't care and you know, just let the kids run around in the car park and you know they've gone too far the other way. Somewhere somewhere in the middle is just is just right. You know, and like you're saying, you, know, you don't want to bring your kids up scared of everything. And my daughter said to me yesterday, you know, she's probably going to get in trouble for it. There's a there's a um, abandoned house. Can I go and can I, uh, we all want to go and see it? Can I go and play in it? And I was thinking, no, abandoned house, nails, you know, broken tile, blah, 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 fucking, you know, my instinct is, fuck, no, no. But she's, I said, well, who's going? She named her friends. Every every part of me wants to say no. And I'm sure as a, as a firefighter, you're thinking, fucking dangerous structure. That's what I'm thinking too. But I'm thinking, well, I used to play in these places. I said, all right, but be careful. Just be careful. I said, and be aware that that abandoned house is still owned by someone. So you're probably going to be trespassing. She says, no, no, it's empty. And I said, yeah, but someone, somebody owns everything. Anyway, I felt quite good, actually, because I let her go and play. But she got caught. And, there's, and then some bloke told him off, and now she's going to get in the shit at school on Monday. But she can learn. She can learn a little <laughs> lesson. No one actually got hurt. But, um, yeah, someone was, a, someone was offended that they'd um, gone into this uh, abandoned building. But she'll just get a slap on the wrist, I'm sure. But yeah, you know, it's difficult for me to let go of things like that and just let them. Uh... But I might have been a lot worse than that when I was a kid, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to get into de- your deployments because obviously you work in some pretty interesting places around the world. One thing I always ask everyone, though, who has deployed, obviously a lot. A lot of the guests are more kind of Afghanistan and Iraq, but um, you know, I know your deployments went further back and some other countries first, but. When the civilian world, myself included, you know, we get a picture of war, it's very, very polarizing. And I kind of preface this the same way each time. You either have the kill them all, let God sort them out mentality, or you have all, all military are baby killers, you know. And the, and the reality in the middle is the men and women that are actually on the ground seeing with their own eyeballs what they're faced with. And, you know, a lot of times these atrocities that they witness are even being done to the people in that country. We think of, you know, oh, Iraqis are the enemy. No, Iraqis aren't the enemy. You know, the Iraqi people are trying to survive while these shitbags are in their country terrorizing them. So from this, you know, innocent teen that enters the military, was there like a first aha moment where, where you were deployed in whatever, you know, wherever you first saw this, where you realized regardless of politics, send us to some of these places there are horrible human beings in these countries that need to be dealt with. Yeah. Oh, yeah, loads, mate. To be fair, I'd say that about pretty much everywhere I've been. There's some fucking nasty people out there. You know, horrendous people. And I think they kind of, the, the, um, I don't want to put labels on people, but people who uh, kind of um, see things through rose-tinted glasses, you know, they really got to wake up. There's some really bad places out there. You definitely don't want your kids to go to. Or anyone you care about to go to, and whether it's a cultural thing or a 
a specific area in a country. There's some fucking bad places. I mean, terrible places. I mean, America's got so we've got obviously Britain's got some bad places. America's got some bad places, but at least kind of uh, the culture accepts that what's going on there is is bad. Then everyone knows that. Don't go there, mate. It's fucking you know that's 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 a rough place. That's a shithole. Don't go there. Some I think some countries are, are, are like that in the majority of the country, you know. And it's like that's my opinion. But yeah, and I mean, the first tour I went on was, was Northern Ireland. I mean, Northern Ireland's a part of the United Kingdom, you know? and it's a crazy, it's a crazy place. And I went there actually when the, when the, the uh, Good Friday Agreement or the, you know, whatever the, the ceasefire type uh, package is called, was just either uh, it started while we we're out there. I think it's, it was ongoing while we we're out there. So it was a change, you know, people trying to strive towards peace or a lot of people. But it's just crazy, you know, because you you drive around a corner and it'd be, you know, red, white and blue curbstones and the Union Jack flags up, uh, outside houses. Literally turn a corner, drive down the next street. It's green, white, orange, you know, Irish uh, flags and curbstones. And then people throw, I remember someone just throwing a bike at us once, just jumped out in front of our Land Rover, a snatch vehicle, which hideous, hideous armoured Land Rover, and just ran out in the road and just threw his bike at us, you know. And just bounced off the windscreen. And just thinking, people fucking hate us. You know, they really, really hate you. You know, and you're constantly aware that the road you're driving down, someone got shot there before, or someone got blown up there before. Every lamppost could have explosives in it. You know, every bike could have a, have explosives explosives in it. It's just crazy. It's partly because it's part of the United Kingdom, and I, I, I think it's in the yeah. So it's in that book you read where that little kid just came up. Came up to me and threw a bottle at me. The kid was tiny. You know, I'm just patrolling through a place called the Ardoin, just a, a rough, uh, a rough area in West Belfast. And this kid just kind of, uh, we're on our way back into into camp. It's just getting dark. This little kid comes walking towards me, tiny. Uh, I think they were like half half naked, and carrying a bottle in our hand. You know, the bottle was half the size of them. He's walking up to me, tiny little kid. I looked at him, and there's two, a couple of adults sort of going, you know, like, going, yeah, 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 geeing them up. I looked at him, you fucking pricks. You can all see what was going to happen. And this kid ran up to me, well, walked up to me, stood right in front of me, and this officer, who I, was with, I think I was out with three paramortars, actually, at the time, because I used to go out there, uh, because I was in a signals uh, platoon, I used to go out and just, like, uh, take someone else's place in a patrol. Um, and this officer said to me, don't, don't hit him, Brown, don't hit him. I'm like, flapping, I was going to hit this kid. This kid was probably four years old, something like that. I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? And I just looked at this kid. I looked down at him and just like, I knew what I was going to do. And he just threw this bottle at me. It was an empty bottle. And it just hit me, bounced, bounced on my leg, just gently, because he had no fucking, you know, tiny. And then it smashed on the floor at my feet. And I was just like, you know, I looked at these blokes and they are kind of, yeah, fucking, yeah, Brit bastard, and whatever they were saying. I was just like, fucking mobs, you know, it was all tough. We saw that that kid ain't got a fucking chance, you know. He's, and you know, the same every everywhere he's got them areas and all the dogs are barking at you, you know, and they're like because they chain the dog to have a go at you. And you say, they just hate you, you know, but for no real reason. There's no real reason behind it. As a soldier, you're just going there, and you know, like you alluded to, and you you question it's like you're just going where you're told. You're just doing your job. You know, I've got no personal personal problem with any of these people. You know, I don't, I don't hate that bloke or that bloke or this person. 
just, you know, if we knew each other, if we met each other, we'd probably get on really well. It's so weird. It's, you know, it happens in all conflicts, you know. You could be your best mate in a separate circumstance. But in that moment in time, you know, you're trying to kill each other. You want to, you want to kill each other. Northern Ireland was, uh, you know, it wasn't, there's been some really rough tours before the toll I went on. That was in, I can't actually remember, 97, 98, something like that. Um, but then after that, it was totally different. The next tour I did after that was Sierra Leone, you know, and that was, well, like, you know, you, you, you spoke to Ishmael, did you say? Yeah, Ishmael Bay. So, that, you know, that's some crazy shit going on there. Absolute you know, savagery. You know, beyond most people's comprehension, really, what they were doing to each other out there and with the kids, you know. You say they're just chopping off arms, chopping off legs, cutting uh, cutting open women, pregnant women, to, and taking a bet on whether it's a boy or a girl inside, and just pulling out the fetus and discarding it. You know, it's just so much, so much madness. Um, yeah, I mean, we were told there was like, well, we got told different numbers between six hundred and two thousand rebels advancing towards this town, and we were to hold it, hold it for as long as possible. But then when we it's like, when you get overrun. You got, if there's any vehicles left, there's one vehicle there. If there's vehicles left, we get on the vehicle and we drive this way. If not, you know, we'll we'll just head through the jungle and we'll keep going. And, and it's like, what? We didn't even have a map. We didn't even have maps. I was like, what the fuck? And I was quite new in the Pathfinders at the time. Everything had happened so fast. You know, there wasn't time for maps. Um, someone went Someone went and got a photo, found a photocopy because we were at an airport in Freetown and photocopied some maps. And basically, uh, you know, we had a cardinal bearing. I don't remember. It's like south, head southwest through the jungle till we hit. I can't remember the feature, um, but that was pretty crazy. You no, know? no, like oh yeah, these people these are all off their head on drugs, and they just like, their tactic is to surround the target, which would be the village we we're in, and attack from all directions. Fucking hell! You know, it's like the way it was briefed to us is like they are coming. You know, hold it for as long as you can. When you get overrun, withdraw. Anyone, no one gets left behind, whether they're dead or alive. It was a terrible set of orders, really. I mean, the boss, I think the boss, I think he actually got relieved in place while we were out there. And then, but yeah, I mean, anyway, and eventually there was an attack, you know, you could, there's, there's, there's books written about that, uh, that, that specific uh, event anyway, but that was quite an eye opener. Again, you know, it's one in places we were right in the middle of a village, and there's no way of differentiating. That's the problem in a lot of modern day conflicts. You don't know who they, who, who hates you and who, who likes you. You don't know who's going to try and kill you, and, you know, if you're asleep. You just don't know. It's just surrounded by people, and there's people coming in in like minibuses with, you know, there could there be like a minibus with fifty people on it. I'm not even exaggerating. They'd be crammed inside, and they'd be all on the roof. Sometimes we'd, we'd have to get them off to check and make sure there's no weapons and stuff. And we'd just go, fucking hell. It was like the anthill mob. It's like one of them pro TV shows where there's actually people getting in one side. You can't see it because the camera blocked that side of the car off. But there's just more people getting in as other people get out. It's just like, where are they all coming from? There's like 50 or people in a minibus. Um, but you don't know. They, they, just, they, they just smile and, you know, and you get them back, you let them back on the minibus because you don't find any weapons or anything and, and on the go. You don't know who you're letting through. It's, it's crazy. The same man in Afghanistan and Iraq. There's no way of telling. There's no there's no uniform. The, the baddies wear this. The goodies wear it. It's, it's everywhere. Well, the, the threat. The threat is 360. So it's, um, I'd say all, all operational tours are, are the same, really. You know, again, it's hard to compare. But, um, you know, this, 
But when was the last time we had a, probably what, the Falklands would be the last time we had a, whoa, a, a conflict where you know, they wear this uniform and they speak this language. We wear this uniform and it's like face off, fight. You know, the, I don't think there's been another one like that since probably since probably the Falklands. I think I've answered. I don't know. I may may not have answered your question. Man. No, no, you haven't. Here's here's the thing. So there's there's a couple of layers. And I want to explore a few of them. But firstly, just what you touched on in Sierra Leone. And for everyone listening, Ishmael Bay. What did I say? It was episode eighty-eight. Yeah, two fat ladies. Yeah, episode eighty-eight. Um, was a boy soldier in Sierra Leone, probably around the same time that you were there in your capacity. Um, so hearing that story of him being a you know happy young boy, and then there's this horrendous kind of pseudo civil war, and his parents are killed, and he's forced forced to be a boy soldier. Otherwise, he's executed. It's not much of a choice. Um, you know, and, and you have that, and then obviously the Northern Ireland side too. So you take Ireland. I never understood this, how we're on these two rocks in the middle of the Atlantic. And, uh, you know, we we inhabit, our three countries inhabit the triangle, and there's another little circle next to us. So we're basically the same country. You can call it what you want, you know, Europistan or whatever fucking name you want. But basically, our four countries are the same people. And so when, you know, I grew up, you know, in in the 70s and 80s as a young kid watching the news and watching all the bombs going off and the sectarian violence. And it it never made sense to me that we weren't all one. And I, and I totally understand the, you know, wanting to be independent versus want to be part of the UK. And I get both arguments. But, um, you know, the, the reality is now, this is 2021, you know, we're a cluster of four countries that are made up of the same people. You know, we really are. So when you when you look back now, you've got Sierra Leone, you've got Northern Ireland, you've got Afghanistan, you've got all these places that you've been to. Are there any common denominators of the root of these, of this, these issues? Because just to preface that, when I reverse engineer a lot of the problems in the world, it comes down to power and greed it's not actually truly a religious war or you know freedom or any of this stuff it's the people pulling the puppet strings are ultimately benefiting greatly while the people on the the the, the streets of belfast or south central la or wherever it is that are actually bleeding and dying aren't the ones that are gaining from this so when you know with with all these conflicts what did you see as the absolute root cause a lot of this violence Hmm. I don't know really, mate. I think as a soldier on the ground, I think that kind of you kind of see that stuff as above above your pay grade. You know, that's for the generals or whatever to work out. I think it's just too complicated. And I think I think as a soldier as well, if you if you look into it too much, if you looked into it too much, there's probably a risk that you won't believe in what you're doing. You know, and you can't you can't afford that. You know. You can't, you, can't, you can't, there's always two sides to every argument, isn't there? There's always, always going to be. But you get your orders and you get your briefings as a soldier. Obviously, they're biased. Obviously, they have to be. You know, they're from our perspective or the perspective that, the, that our government wants you to see it from and, and engage from. You know, obviously, I'm not, I'm not stupid enough not to look into a little bit. But to me, it just seems, a lot of it just seems like personalities, you know, a person. Like, 
you know, I, I was thinking the other day, I wonder whether, well, I, I don't think World War II would happen if Hitler wasn't alive. Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian by any, by any stretch, and I'm terrible for, um, for, for reading. But that one person made such a massive difference. So it seemed to me. You think, well, what is it about that person? You know, they're just fucking nuts, probably. Absolutely crazy. It's just like two people, you know, and people were flapping about Donald Trump getting in power and everyone's off. Oh, my kids were in, in, I don't know whether you have been uh, back in the UK since uh, that sort of period, but, you know, the kids around here were all terrified that World War Three was going to happen because of the way the teachers were saying that Donald Trump is such a bad man that World War Three was going to happen. I was like, Jesus Christ. No, no, I actually got asked that by my kids. If Donald Trump win, becomes a president, so was this, this was what, four or five years ago? How many young? You know, will there be World War Three? Jesus Christ. Obviously, they're getting fed that by the teachers, you know, because that's where, they're, that's where they're getting their information from. But, you know, it's like, because he, you know, people see him as a, a bad person, or a lot of people did, versus King John. King, King John, who's another bad person, and two bad people have such a massive, massive effect. But to be honest, I think most of the soldiers, the boots on the ground, it's, it's like, it doesn't really matter. Because it doesn't really matter what you think about politics or sport. You know, your job is to do what you're told at the basic level. And if you question that, if you start questioning everything, every order or every sort of decision that's made, you know, that's not that's just not how our military can function effectively. So, you know, without, without trying to, I'm not dodging your question. So I've never really thought about it that much, you know, and certainly whilst I've been on the ground. And everything will ring true anyway. You'll get told these are the bad people. These are the, you know, they want to kill you. Um, they're bad. We've got to get rid of them for the greater good. And it's sure as shit. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you'll go out and someone starts shooting at you. And sure enough, they're the people that they told you uh, wanted to kill you. And then you hear on the radio that one of your mates has just had his fucking leg blown off and someone else has just, you know, has just been killed. And you're like, it's just like, okay, you know, who am I? Uh, uh, do you know what I mean? It kind of, it all becomes, it all becomes true. Yeah. Well, I think, and that's the problem is that it's a, it's a vicious circle. You know, I mean, there, what you discussed about Sierra Leone and what some of those rebels were doing is, you know, awful. And that's not most of the militaries of the world. You know, like you said, most of the militaries are just on the ground. Those are the bad guys. Go kill them. And then the other side, the people are saying, those are the bad guys. Go kill them. You know, so you have this, this vicious circle. And we're seeing now with Palestine and Israel, same exact thing. As you said, people that probably, if they got past their differences, would be friends. And instead, they're murdering each other, you know? And it's just, it's, you see the same cycle over and over again. Well, you, you mentioned about losing people. It seemed like one person that, um, you know, made a big impact. And, and it's kind of the first time that we're brought into your mental health journey is, uh, Brian Budd. So, Tell me about, you know, tell me about Brian and then, um, you know, we'll kind of start walking into when you noticed, when you were struggling or whatever, whatever kind of realization you had about your own mental health after that. Yes. Yeah, so the way I found out about me and me and Brian were mates in three para. He did the Pathfinder course. It was one before mine. So I say six months before me. Um, then I went to Park One as 
in the end of uh, 99. And then we did a couple of, we did a few bits, quite a bit of work together. We did a few, a couple of tours together. He was in, we were in the same patrol in, let me just think, we were in the same patrol in Macedonia, I think. Definitely in the same patrol in uh, Afghanistan. The first time we went there in 2002. Um, same, uh, same patrol in, in Iraq in 2003. You know, we were, we were good, good friends, um, both from Free Para, both, you know, parachute regiment privates and Lance Corbels together. And then, um, yeah, Bry went away, uh, got posted to uh, Harrogate, I think it was, to, to train recruits, young recruits. Uh, I stayed. I, I stayed on at the path owners, and then um, when he was going to come back, we were trying to get actually trying to get him back to the path owners. We knew we were going to. Um, we knew we were going out to Afghanistan in 2006 as well. And um, Brian, I think, was coming back from his, his post in Harrogate not long before that. So you know, I said to him, the, the boss we had at the time, we need to get Brian Bud back. You know, he's, he's coming back, and he didn't want to come back. The battalion wanted him back as well. You know, the battalion wanted to, to serve some time in the battalion. He was, he was a very well respected, very good soldier. They wanted him. We all wanted him. Um, anyway, so he, he, the battalion's a bigger beast. They they got first dibs. Brian went back to uh, three para for a bit, and then we all went out to um, Afghanistan in that 2006 tour. I was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd gone on paternity leave because my son was born while I was out uh, out on that tour, and then the day I came back, so I'd been out. Uh, ended up going on paternity leave for like over a month, maybe even two months. I actually finished my uh, Tandem Masters course as well during that paternity leave uh, out, out in the States. And then, uh, yeah, I got back and I went to Camp Bastion. And then I was in this, in this tent. And a guy I knew um, from Free Power, from an, an old friend. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember any, any of these people. I just remember his old, old mates of mine came, came to talk, saw me and said, oh, have you heard what's going on? There's a... Um, it was a bloke MIA in uh, Sangin. I was like, oh, fuck, no, I didn't know I didn't know, I didn't know about that. I mean, I was just started waiting to, to get picked up with my own blokes who were going to be passing through. And um, I was like, no, no, I didn't know. And then, you know, I heard that from a couple of people. And then a bit later on, someone came, you know, not long later, someone came along and said, uh, oh, Steve, have you heard about, uh, you know, a bloke who's MIA? Have you heard who it is? No, mate. And he said, it's Bright Bud. And I was like, oh, fuck. They're missing in action, obviously, your name. Um, I was like, oh, fuck. You know, and the Brian was a good bloke, really good, very, very capable soldier. I thought, oh, you know, hopefully it'll be all right. Uh, but then I had that a couple of times, and then, yeah, someone came through and said, oh, Steve, you heard about, you heard about what's happened to Brian? I was like, oh, fuck. you know, you can just tell, you know, when someone's going to deliver some bad news. And I said, no, don't tell me. And he said, they, they found him, mate, he's dead. And I was like, fuck. And then, so, oh, mate, it fucking breaks me. I fucking hate talking. Well, I don't hate talking about it. I just find it really fucking upset. And then, yeah, and I was like, oh, fuck's sake. And then, yeah, over a period of probably half an hour or so, a couple more people came. And Steve, if you heard, and I was like, yeah, I've heard, mate, I've heard. But, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't emotional at all. I was just like, yeah, because, you know, I was thinking, they're fucking telling me. They, you know, they're as upset as I am about it. And, um, yeah, and he's um, yeah, and he's he, obviously he, they, but they sent out a big mission to go and to go and recover him, but you know, he got to him and he was he, he'd been killed. But yeah, it's um, probably quite a while afterwards, really, where I realised how much uh, 
how upset that that made me. It still does, you know, obviously. But um, yeah, was, that was a that was a bad day. But again, you know, it's like I, I wasn't there. I wasn't there when he got when he got killed. I wasn't there when you know the blokes went and recovered his body. Um, you know, I'd be a fucking mess. I think if I was, you know, you know nothing special. I, can't, I don't know how I would have dealt with that. You know, I knew his. Well, I, I do. I know. I knew or I know his wife, Lorena. I was actually out with Brian the night they got together. You know, we were up together. And he, she was pregnant as well. It's just everything about it was just shit. I was just like, fucking, this is just, this is just shit. And I think, you know, I had a few friends die in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you know, I think the hardest part is, I think, and I even hate to say it, is, you know, I think ultimately, you know, they died for fucking, they died for nothing. You know, it's, as much as we can say, you know, you can, we don't want to say that, you know, we want to, you know, sort of give them the glory they deserve. But, you know, it's not a place like Sangin. What goes on there now? It's just, is it a better place? I doubt it. You know, other, other friends of mine who've been killed in you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, as soon as you leave them places, just get taken over again by the same people who were there, you know, when you got there. They might be calling themselves something else by then, or they might be wearing a different, uh, some different clothes, or might be uh, loyal to a new leader. But they're the same people. And they're doing the same bad stuff they were doing before you got there. And you think, what, what's been achieved? You know, I'm quite cynical about stuff like that. I think not a great deal, you know, if I'm honest. And then, you know, and that's a bad part. You know, I, I think so someone like Bry, and another bloke, bloke who's a really good friend of mine, John Hollingsworth, you know, there uh, we went to um, special forces and, and got killed uh, on a mission with them. You know, they're decades, decades are so young. I didn't, I didn't meet them, but I've got no memory of them. You know, and the kids. You know, and I think, you know, I think, you know, I've learned that I needed a father figure, and he might not have been the best, but he, at least he was alive. You know, these kids just got. You know, stories or medals or it's just, it's just, that's just terrible, terrible for them kids. But yeah, as you can see, uh, you know, I, you know, it's, it, I find it really, really sad. Well, I think it's important though, mate, that people hear that side of the story too. You know what I mean? Because again, back at home, there's that pomp and circumstance, like you know, where we drape our fallen men and women with with flags and we call them heroes and you know they'll be on the news and and there'll be a moment of silence and that's it but that's whether it's a a soldier killed on the battlefield whether it's a firefighter that died of cancer because of their job or you know a police officer that was run over on the side of the road you know what i mean it's the same thing like a, a moment it's like it's like clapping for the fucking nhs during covid it's it's a it's symbolism it's not fixing anything you know what i mean so I there of course are times where violence is needed and I've had some really interesting conversations with some of the Green Beret community recently and they talk about the same thing like you know we've lost so many people to IEDs and you know their thing is you know there there are there's work to be done in some of these countries 
but more of a laser focus approach might have been a lot more successful than just sending in every tank ship and you know pair of boots possible and flooding these countries and so as someone who's not in the military so you know i'm talking from a complete layman's point of view how could you not be heartbroken that you lost a bunch of men and women only to see a a, a city overrun again you know the you know the jocker willing talks about um you know um i'm blanking on the the city he was in now but uh, anyway, he you know he lost good friends, and obviously all his his group did. And then for a time, they I believe they were overrun again. You know, that that when they left, they took the city back. So it's important that us, the non-military rest of the world, understand these stories and understand that when someone like let's say Donald Trump, who I've been very open, I can't stand him as a person. It's not a political thing. I'm not left right. I think our, our system over here is fucking broken. So we don't end up with leaders. You know, and we got a new person now who's on the similar similar shelf, in my opinion. But that that person, that individual, can send our basically school children, you know, seventeen, eighteen year olds, into battle and returning in coffins because of their arrogance, their ego, rather than sending us when we're absolutely needed. And you and I could both agree, like World War Two, no one can dispute that. The, our our ancestors that went in and fought those battles, you know, there was mass genocide going on, and it, you know, you and I would be speaking German if if they'd lost that war. Um, but you know, you we have to understand that there is a fucking huge cost when we start a quote unquote war, and and if we're not doing the absolute best to make sure that you know we ensure the safety of our men and women, and our our, our tactics are doing that then shame on us. And if there is this industrial military complex that's making money hand over fist as our young men and women are coming back in body bags, also shame on you. Of course, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a, it's going to cost to go to war, but there's a lot of people getting very rich the, each additional year that we're at war. So I'm just trying to stand in the middle and say, look, yes, there are bad people that need to be taken out. And you know that's why I asked that question. But at the same time, if we just send every single person in uniform over there where's the where are the repercussions of those decisions as our men and women come back in coffins yeah and you always leave whenever you leave you leave a void and it's like even when we were in sierra leone you know we were defending that very well platoon of us and a pathfinders you know, about there's about 30 blokes there's a platoon of nigerians there from the un and again about another 30 but then when we got told we were move, getting moved out, because when we went there, we were told we were only going for, it was either 36 or 48 hours, say two days. We had, we took next to nothing, really. We just had a belt kit, you know, a webbing, a bit of pouches, and a, a day section, a small rucksack to last us for a couple of days, you know. We didn't need a lot. We were there for three weeks. But then... Yeah, we had we had trenches and defensive positions and all that. We had a massive field of fire, you know, cleared, and a field of view with trees cut down for a long way around a around a village. You know, it seemed like we were there quite permanent. You know, and people were coming into that village because they knew that the, the Brits were there. You know, Nigerians were there. They were terrified of the Nigerians. We were fucking terrified of them. They were pretty brutal, even though they were on our there. Luckily, they were on our side. But because they knew there were British soldiers there, loads of people were coming into that village. So say like, you know, minibus full of 50 or people, they were sort of seeking refuge behind that 
barrier, if you like, thinking they'd be safe. And then obviously we get our orders, you're out, mate. You know, like up sticks and we're like, oh, he's taken over from us. No one. Fuck. You know, you've got, you know, and as you're sort of, we try to pack up quite quietly, really, because we know people are going to, we get told, you know, get, get the kids here. We're, we're, le- we're leaving, sort of thing, you know. You know? And then people are saying, where are you guys going? You know, locals. Uh, oh, we don't, we don't really know, you know. Didn't really want to tell them. I didn't. I don't know who told who, to be honest. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in the headquarters. But we fucked off and left them, you know. Yeah, no doubt some of them were pretty pissed. Pretty pissed off about that, you know. You know, I don't know whether I don't think I don't not that I know if there was any sort of repercussions for them. I think kind of trouble was was quashed. But um, yeah, but yeah. You saying it's interesting. You saying about kind of uh, symbolism and you know, clapping and all this and a minute silence. It's like I I I I feel quite guilty because I, I don't like uh, memorial services at all. I mean, I'm not religious anyway. Which is part of it because it, kind of, it always gets, for want of a better word, hijacked by religion. You know, it's supposed to be about an individual, in my opinion. But I just find them really. Uh, I just, I mean, you see, you, no doubt, you can see. I, I get quite emotional when I think about, you know, my mates who've been killed, and um, that's kind of minute. I'm sure it used to be one minute. I don't know that was two minutes. Silence is, is just fucking. I don't, I don't like it because I, 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 I just get really upset. I think I don't want to. I don't want to be in a group, a massive group of people. And the only way not to do it is just to start thinking about something else, which is the complete opposite thing of the whole two-minute silence. You're supposed to, you know, I have to just switch off and think about something else, like a fucking merry-go-round or, or something. You know, or, or just look at the grass blowing in the wind. And just completely, completely think about anything other than, you know, the fallen. So I don't like. I, I really don't like memorial services. And people say, what did you do? You know, I, I blag my way out of loads of, loads of them. And people say, oh, you know, you're doing a memorial service in work or in camp. And I'm like, no, I'm doing the one in my local village. Don't, don't do any of them. You know, I, I stay at home, you know, and I, I think about, I think about, you know, the fallen a lot in my own time. I don't need someone, I, you know, I'm not disrespecting them. I think it's amazing. It's just not for me personally. You know, I think about, I think, I, I do that two minutes silence a lot in my own time. I don't need to do it when someone tells me to do it. And I don't want to do it then because it's just, I can't, yeah, it's just going to make me feel really bad. And that's quite it's selfish in a way, but at the same time, it's, yeah, it's, it's my coping mechanism, I suppose. But I don't like, yeah, I don't like it. And I don't like, you know, I don't like any of the sort of symbolic stuff that, you know, that people do then, uh, a lot of the time at the moment anyway. If you don't, you know, if it's not from your heart, then don't fucking do it. You know, if you know, if you don't mean it, don't do it. Don't say it. You know, don't lie. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the the reasons I started this podcast, we had about six funerals, lost about six firefighters in a couple of years, and by the end of it, the sound of bagpipes. I mean, I wanted to just fucking grab them and you know set fire to them when they were playing them in the funeral because. It was obviously, you know, a, a trigger for lack of a better word, but it was more about. I knew in my heart of hearts that several of these, if not all of them, their deaths were preventable. I knew the elements of our job, whether it was, you know, what we talked about, what we see, the sleep deprivation, the things we're exposed to. I mean, all these different elements had contributed to 
each one of these caskets, each one of these children or wives sobbing as a helmet or a folded American flag was given to them. So those those bagpipes to me almost symbolize, again, it's, it's the symbolism. And I fucking hate the sound of bagpipes. I even wrote about it in my book. I used to go on uh, Hampstead Heath and there'd be a piper there when I was young playing. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Now I can't fucking stand them for that reason. But it's that. It's like you have symbolism, but symbolism doesn't stop more of our men and women dying. It accepts it. And that's what pisses me off. It shouldn't be fucking normal. We should be outraged every single time someone comes back in a coffin. And so if we're not doing things to fix it the same way, I'm a perfect example, this whole COVID thing, where the fuck was a conversation about obesity, addiction, all these things that are killing our people all the time. You weren't even allowed to talk about that. You were, it was heresy. Oh, don't you dare talk about their blood pressure. It's COVID. No, it's, it's that plus all these other things. So that's a perfect example. So yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from because all that pomp and circumstance ultimately is an acceptance and there's no drive towards stopping the same thing happening again and again. Yeah. And it's the same when you hear the politicians or the prime minister or the president or they'll make a point and they've got it in the notes and I'll say someone's name. You know, and like, we'll remember their sacrifice and they're not forgotten. They haven't died in vain. But it's just a speech that they've given. It's a generic speech for every person. It's like they'll you know, insert that name. It's the same shit. And to me, they don't mean it. And it just makes it just like, don't fucking say it. Don't fucking say it. I know what you're going to say. We all know what you're going to say. It's not sincere. Don't fucking say it. It's just, I just find it really, to me, it just, it just goes the other way. It just makes me more cynical because like, that's exactly what you said about the last person whose name you can't fucking even remember. You know, probably neither can I. You know, because it's just another person who's been, who's been killed. You know, did, like you say, didn't need, didn't need to be killed. And the preventable stuff is, is, is that just, you know, that makes it worse as well. I mean, we had a, we had a, we were actually involved uh, in a patrol I went on in, in Afghanistan. We had the first mine strike. We had the first contact. Of that of the, of the operation of the yeah of, he- of Herrick as pathfinders, and we had the first mine strike as well. You know, we had no armor. I mean, we were, I remember driving out of our base in, a, in our Land Rover Winix, which is a cut-down Land Rover, basically with weapons on, on the weapons platform on it, and uh, some American ODA guys were coming into camp, and I've been chat. We'd been chatting with them a bit anyway. They were good guys. And this guy says to us, where, where are you guys going? I said, oh, we're going here. And I said, said this village, which is like 20 kilometers away or so. He was just like, what the fuck? He goes, you're fucking joking. I'm like, no. I'm like thinking, what's wrong with him? Like, you know? No, why? He goes, where's your armor? And I was like, ha-ha. Oh. <laughs> and he's like, no, where's your armor? And I'm like, we haven't got any armor, mate. He said, you're going out like that. And just like a normal Land Rover that you get driving around Salisbury Plain, you know? There was no armor at the time at all. So we don't, we haven't got any. And it was just like, fuck, you know, they just, they just couldn't believe it. And we're like, oh, well, you know, some of the boats had sort of shorts on, you know, cut, cut the bottom of their trousers off and, and we just bowling around like that. You know, and then we ended up having a mine strike and the guy in the back, and his pictures were on the internet, the, the back of the Land Rover just opened up like a, like a tin can where he was standing with a mine just hit and the main uh, force of the impact went through. Um, he lost a leg. But, you know, none of them, fortunately, none of them died, but one guy broke his back and his neck and he was fucked up. And the other guy he smashed his leg to bits. 
the bloke, the other bloke was actually injury free. The guy who's driving he was in, completely injury free. Actually went on to go uh, special forces and you know, he's, I don't know he's still serving, having a good career. But that was the first mine strike. Now at the time when we had that mine strike, there was people driving around in camp in say uh, Bastion and places like that with with armor, but they were uh, doing uh, base security. So like driving around like the perimeter basically of Camp Bastion, which is like the main camp for the Brits. They had armor. It wasn't the best armor, but they had some armor. And then the chances of them getting in, uh, hit by a mine or get hit at all was tiny compared to us. We were just a, a small teams going out to places no, no one had even, you know, some places weren't even on the map. But they had armor and we didn't. And then when we got back, you know, the boss I had at the time says, he said, well, that's it. I've told him we're not going out until we get some fucking armor. But it was too late, you know. We're all cool. Before that, we were all going, how come they've got fucking armor? And we haven't. You know, we're the ones out, out in the, you know, putting our lives at risk, if you like, or not going to these places with potential. These guys are pretty safe. But, you know, then after, I don't know. I mean, maybe if there was armor, even though the armor wasn't the best, but it may, it may have... Maybe that guy didn't need to lose a leg. Maybe that guy didn't need to break his back and his neck. You just don't know. But I'm sure they would have been better off with that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's another thing that I see a lot, you know. It's, I understand, especially with with post-9-11, you know, there was there was a genesis as, you know, the IEDs obviously became the main, one of the main weapons that, you know, the, the element of armor needed to be heavier and heavier and heavier. So, but sadly, I'm sure there were a lot of forward thinking, progressive people in, in elements of the military that were saying like, Hey, you know, this, this is what we're hearing. We need to be prepared for this. And it's the same in the fire service. A lot of times those guys are told to shut the hell up until it happens and then they're like oh yeah we need art you know it's too fucking late now you just you know buried some people like you said you got some people who'll never walk again so uh yeah i mean sadly it's something that we see you know and we're talking obviously worst case but there's no point talking about the best case because the best case is things are great so we need to have these uncomfortable discussions about the areas that still need to be addressed so moving on to your mental health obviously you've got you know the actual combat itself, what you've seen, your childhood trauma, you've got, you know, losing friends. You've, I'm sure that the weight of the guilt of leaving a village in Sierra Leone, not sure if they're all going to be massacred after you leave. I mean, there's all these different, you know, layers, and that's what this is about. There's these layers, and, you know, how many layers can you withstand before you get to a critical point? You had mentioned suicidal ideation in the book. So kind of walk me through your your mental health journey you know where was your lowest point and then what started working how did you find the right people to help you i'm not sure if i've got a lowest point to be fair because i've kind of have uh you know, I know like loads and loads and loads of people have got depression they might not have been diagnosed it they might not know it they might want to not not want to accept it sometimes you know i'll go even now you know i'll go for you know months at a time where i just feel nothing but you know, sadness or just unhappiness, more than sadness. You know, just, you just think, well, do you know what? I just think, what's the fuck? I've been uh, at that point quite a few times where you think, what's the fucking point? You know, what is the point if I'm, all, if I'm never going to be happy? It's quite difficult, you know, and I don't, I don't want it to come across like self-pity or anything like that. I don't want to be anything like that. It's just being open, you know. It's, it's quite difficult to talk about, I think, but because a lot of people, it's hard to talk about it without kind of making out your special you've had it hard and anyone else which I, I really 
don't don't feel like it at all, you know. And I def, you know, I just try to be uh, open and honest. But you know, when you're when you when you're just like feeling unhappy, and you don't realise, I think it's hard. It's, and when I'm not unhappy, it's hard to remember what it was like, even though it might be the next day. No, I, I, I wrote about how you know there's a bridge not too far from here, and when I'm unhappy, I just I, you know I don't do it intentionally. I just sort of Something I realised I did a while ago. I always think about driving off it, you know, and a picture of driving off it because that would be the end, and then I'd be like, oh, "Thank fuck, that's over," you know, that, that fucking miserable life. But going going to see mental some mental health initially was because I thought I'm gonna. F- I, th- I was really uh, well. The first time I just realised I was really unhappy. Actually, I was in in the mess in, in the camp I was working in, and I'd seen the doctor uh, about something like my ankle or something. And then she was, she was a civilian doctor. This is a long time ago, sort of 2010 or something like that. And she was talking to some people. She said, I was sat at that table, the big table. And she said something like, um, blah, blah, blah. You know, someone said, he's a bit miserable. And she goes, I mean, some people are. I mean, like you, she pointed at me. She goes, I mean, she goes, I mean, you really, you're, you really are miserable. And I thought, this is, this is a doctor that said this? Yeah, I swear to you. And I was just like, that's why, because I was thinking, what the fuck? She so, you know, you are, you know, you're, you're, you're really miserable. And I was thinking, ah, uh, right, and I thought, that's really embarrassing. You know, it's just part of a little story she was getting out, and then, you know, like, have a little joke. But I thought, that made me think, I, I really, yeah, she's not wrong. We shouldn't be making a joke out at my expense about it. But I thought, yeah, I am fucking miserable. I am actually really unhappy. And why is that? And I couldn't remember being happy, you know. People say to you, well, you know, as you can't, a lot of times you can't imagine it, you know. It's, it's weird. It's probably really weird to someone who doesn't feel like that to hear. But I, I went to see her in, uh, not long after that, and I said, I, I think I need help, you know. I just like, oh, fucking, I, I'm really, I am unhappy. Nothing makes me happy. I, you know, I'm angry a lot, blah, blah, blah. And she sent me off to see someone uh, in a department of clinical mental health who sat me down and did a, a, a computer test. Got the results. They basically said to me, yeah, right, we've done you got your results. Uh, we don't think you've got PTSD. And I was like, oh, what the fuck are you talking about? I said, I didn't say I did have PTSD. The way she said it implied that I'd sort of gone in there and said I'd had it. And I was like, well, I said, oh, you the fuck's talking about PTSD? I didn't say anything about PTSD. She's like, well, this test, and she's like, printed it off something. She's like, this, uh, you know, according to this, you haven't got PTSD. And I was like, right. I was thinking, no, I don't fuck, you know, I don't give a fuck what you want to call it. I just want someone to help me. I, you know, because I don't think I should be feeling this this bad all the time. And she pretty much just said to me, so, uh, you know, what do you want? What do you want us to do? You know, you, you haven't got PTSD. You know, I don't fucking know. You're the doctor's one. Like. And she wasn't a doctor. She was like um, a nurse or mental health nurse or whatever. Anyway, they kind of just, you know, see her, see me off. And I just left there really thinking, what? That was a waste of time. And then sort of questioning myself. And then nothing further happened. And then it was a few years later, I, I, I was leave, going to be leaving the military. I was really angry. I was always really having violent thoughts, really, really, really unhappy. Um, you know, always thinking I'd be better off dead, etc. And I went to see another doctor in a, the last camp I worked in, uh, in my regular service. It was really difficult, you know, and, uh, and people who've done it would probably uh, be able to relate. Like saying to, I said to it was another, actually it was a, uh, Another civilian doctor who worked on this camp, a male, and I said to him, I need some help. I said, I think I'm going to leave the army because I was due to leave about seven months after. 
I said, I'm going to leave. I think I'm going to leave a basket case. I said, I think I'm going fucking mental. And I just started crying. I was just like, fucking, honey, please help me. I said, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to fucking kill someone. I'm going to kill someone who doesn't deserve to be killed. I said, I'm fucking, I'm, I'm going fucking mental. And he was like, whoa, okay. And he was actually really good. And he put me on some medication right there and then, actually. That's actually, I said about, um, and that did uh, quite quickly, um, quite quickly turn me around, you know, and, uh, helped me out anyway. But then from there on, I started seeing a mental health nurse, I see her once a week. And then she was quite quick to uh, up me uh, to see a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And, and it went from there, really. And then I got, and then I moved to bases and then so I went to another mental health uh, clinic. But, um, yeah, and I've tried a few different drugs. You know, cause sometimes they don't they do and they don't work. Um, the sertraline was the drama. <laughs> Someone told me about it, actually, when I cut this out. So the, the drama with the sertraline is it, it, it stops kind of any high emotional level. I suppose that's what they all do. That's Anyway, it's, um, it stops you being out of orgasm. Fucking nightmare. Six months of that. Six months of it, well, I remember that. With, uh, you know, and I was really trying, you know, really, really going for it. Like, you know, just couldn't, just couldn't get to the vinegar stroke. Fucking hell. This is, this is, this is horrendous. So I was going on to something else. That didn't put that in, that, that wasn't, I felt like that wasn't really doing anything. I went on something else. I went on one drug and I was actually phoned the doctor up and I, was, I said, fucking get me off this stuff. I was going, that shit crazy. It was sending me the other way, you know. And, um, Eventually, I got on the right one. I guess it's the right one, the one I'm on now, which is called fluoxetine, which apparently in old money is um, Prozac. Prozac used to be quite a well, I guess it's a brand name, but I think it's that. But um, yeah, I mean, going, going and actually asking someone about crossing that, crossing that is a really emo- emotional. Well, what's for me? Just saying it, I need some help. It's like you see in uh, loads of films where they say, oh, my name's so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And everyone's like, yeah. It's like, what the fuck? But I think it's because of that. It's kind of actually verbalising it, you know, acknowledging it. It does kind of get it off your chest. You know, a lot of people just go, fuck that, soldier on your crack. I hate that kind of mentality. Man the fuck up, all that. I, I can't stand that shit. And it's normally someone who, if, 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 if they're going to fight, they'll curl up in a fetal position and piss their pants anyway. It's like, man, you know, man the fuck you know what there's nothing it doesn't make you a man to you know to stay stay sad or stay angry so it doesn't make you a man to admit that you've got a problem either it's that's just not what i don't think being a man is about you know it's just it's just something you need to do but i've forgotten what you asked me mate i hope i've answered it no you have mate no no you and it was uh, interesting you know here in here in the journey through the meds too, you know what I mean? Because that's just it. There are some people that have been on here and, you know, the meds definitely help, you know, whether it's a permanent prescription, whether it was just something that got them down to the point where they're able to do counseling and actually access those those dark areas of their mind to kind of, you know, address those. I want to talk about EMDR in a second. But um, it's important to hear, you know, some some made it worse sexually, some made it worse in general, you know, and... um you know that that's a very very important thing I think for us to hear, and and you absolutely nailed nailed it on the head too. That whole rub some dirt in it, man up bullshit. I always tell people watch Band of Brothers, the hundred and first that were in that, the real men that talk at the beginning and the end. 
Look in their eyes. Listen to their voices. 60 plus years later, they're still heartbroken at what happened. Those are some of the manliest men that ever walked, you know, at least the Western world. So if you think that you're you're more of a man than Easy Company in World War II, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not. And if they can be transparent and talk about their feelings, no one else can look, you know, that's another person in the eye and say, you're not a man if you talk about mental health. You're, that's the most ridiculous thing. Um, well, EMDR is something that comes up a lot, um, seemingly pretty effective for, for most people that have been on here. You talk about it quite a bit in, in your book as well. So you, you know, you, you, you've tried different prescriptions. Some have been good. Some have been not so good. What about on the counseling side, EMDR, any other elements that really helped? Yeah. So something I realized, something I realized, I did a lot. I've done a lot of sessions. I didn't realize how much I've done until I talked to uh, my old GP at, uh, up in the camp, last camp I worked in, who was really good, actually. Another civilian uh, GP. She, she, she was really good. She kind of said to me something like, uh, you know, the average person who goes through mental health uh, psychotherapies, I can't remember the number, it's something like 12, I think, 12 sessions. You know, I've been going there most weeks for five years. Not every week, and sometimes there'll be a break. And I did take a break actually for quite a while, but then I saw, uh, you know, I got set off, and I really got really. Uh, I thought, fucking, I need to get back in there. I'm going to fucking kill someone, someone specific, and um, and then I went back. So I did have a break. I did a lot, and I don't know how many sessions, but I did a lot. Twelve. Yeah. But something I realised is um, a lot of it's just reflection, you know. A lot of it's just a really well well posed question at the right time. Most of it is, is kind of stuff you know already, and like my psych- psychologist would say something, and a lot of the time, and I just go, I'd be like, "That's a good question, that is." Fucking hell! And I'm just, oh, it, it might be something really, really simple, you know, or a couple of words. I'm like, "Oh, this is that's really fucking deep," you know. And I'm like, I take, and I have to really think. Let's just be honest. That's a, that, and that's a difficult thing about psychotherapy as well. Is you don't want to admit stuff. You don't want to admit something made you sad or something you know, made you cry, especially to a woman. But well, depends who you are. And you don't want to speak certain words. I would don't like using in front of women, for example. And I just thought, no, I'm just going to be totally honest. You know, and whatever she says, what she'd say, is there a word that comes to mind when you see that when you picture that? Most of the time, there would be. It's like she could see in my head. And I'd think, yeah, it might be embarrassing. It might be something like, I don't know. You know, you might be talking about, uh, you might be talking about something to do with sex. And then the word might be worm or something. I don't know. And she think, I can't say that. She'll think I've got a cock like a worm. You know, most people go, no, 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 no words. No words come to mind. Not, not at all. No, no, no. Yeah, whereas I just say, yeah, <laughs> there is a word actually. It's worm. You know, it's not because I've got a cock like a worm. It's, you know, you know what I mean? I'm trying to say it once. I'm on a tangent. Is I'd just be totally honest. Whenever she, is there a picture? Is there a word? Is there a phrase? Is there a smell? I'd be like, yeah, there is. And I, and I, just, I just say it. It's all stuff that's in there already. You know? But it's all it's all reflection. And the same with EMDR, really. It's just getting deep into your brain. And the first time I did the EMDR was with this guy who I wrote about in the book. He's actually a really good bloke. It's a guy who I, I really wanted to attack in the session. I think the title of that chapter, <laughs> of that story, I'm not trying to plug it, is um, My Therapist Drives Me Mad. Do you remember it? He's like, he's a mega, mega bloke, don't get me wrong. And I hope if he ever reads it, 
you know, and I think I, I think I say that in the book. In the book, he is a really good bloke, but at that point in time, he just wasn't the right person for me. He was doing MDR, but he was doing it with his finger like this. There's different ways you can do it. His his method was his finger, but he was doing it like this. And every time it went past his nose, I could see I was getting distracted by looking in his eyes just for that, just for that split second. It went past, and I kept I couldn't help but look at his eyes, and I, I thought this is fucking annoying me. Anyway, it didn't it didn't really work with him, and then. Uh, I really, at, one set, at the end of one session, I said to him, I was going to fucking attack you. I said, you really fucking pissed me off. And I knew how ironic it was because the whole point of it was I would hang the person to calm down. And he's like, what? But, but what happened was, I think, I think he was talking to me and he, he said something like, um, I've got nothing on a tangent again. Do you want me to carry on? Because tangent- no, no, no. Don't ever apologize for a tangent. That's why this that we hit record and it goes as long as it goes. Because tangents, I think, is where a lot of a lot of the real not not gold. That sounds real cliche, but a lot of the truth comes out. You know, when when you start going down a rabbit hole, that's probably something like you said. Either you haven't talked about it for a while, or it's just organic. So yeah, we can always come back to the beginning. You know, when that thought process is finished. Okay, man. So yeah, so I was I was explaining stuff to him. He was asking me the questions, and I was like, and I said, well, you know, because bloody blah, and I, you know, because of depression. And he said, have you? And I was like, what? And he's like, have you got have you got depression? And I was like, ah. and that's, I started to get really wound up. And when I get wound up, I start. I didn't realize. A mate of mine pointed out to me. He chalky told me he was taking a piss at me. He said, I saw you doing this. He said, I knew you were getting pissed off. I didn't realize, but I'd be like. I thought, oh, no, really. I had a phase where I used to twitch like this as well. You know, it was like like the maniac on um, the Pink Panther films. You know, the crazy doctor, the crazy uh, chief inspector, like that, Dreyfus. And then, um, anyway, he says to me, oh, "You got a question of you?" I said, "No, well, that's one of my symptoms. That's one of my problems, isn't it?" And he went, "Is it?" And I said, "Well, you fucking tell me, mate." I said, "You, you know, you're the expert." You tell me. And he went, oh, okay. And anyway, he carried on. And he said, and I said, you know, something. I said, someone got my name wrong the other day. And then I said, they, uh, they called me Stephen instead of Steve. And I said, they know my name's fucking Steve. They called me Stephen. That really fucking wound me up. And I'm like, no. I, I overreacted. I really wanted to smash his head. And he's like, and he stops me and he says, so is your name Steve? And I was like, and I just sort of sat forward in my chair and I was like, you fucking what? He says, so is your name Steve? It's not Steve. Is that your actual name, Steve? And I was just like this. Are you taking a piss? I said, are you taking a piss out of me now? What? I said, seriously, mate. I said, are you taking a piss out of me? I said, because you're fucking really pissing me off now. He was like, what? I was just like, fucking, I said, no, no. So I fucking sit here and I spill my guts out to you. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you fucking things I haven't told anybody. And you don't even know my fucking name. You don't know my fucking symptoms. You don't know my name. And I was like, fucking, I, I was really fucking pissed. He was like, oh. And then I, anyway, he calmed me down. Fair play. Fuck's sake, he's actually mega, mega bloke. But I was like, I said, sorry, mate, I'm calm. I'm calm. I said, but I'll tell you what. I said, if you'd have said the wrong thing, a few seconds ago, I said I'd already fucking ran into scenario through my head loads of time. I was going to fucking jump over that desk. I was going to punch your fucking head in. I said, honestly, mate, I was so fucking angry, mate. I said, I'm not now, but I was a minute ago. I said, I'd have fucking knocked your fucking head off. I was fuming. He's like, oh, fuck it, no. Sure as shit. Next time I went there, I, I had a different therapist. But he was, yeah, you know, uh, I used to see him when I come out of my other sessions. I used to bump in the corridor and we got on really, really well. 
But it's just, I don't think he realised it. Like, something like that really fucking set me off. He's like, you don't even know my name. Like, are you fucking listening? To, you know, and I think, how much are you listening to what I'm telling you? If you don't even know my name. You know, it's probably, I don't know, they've got lots of notes and you know, they've got that one patient after the other, but it all seemed very innocent to him. But that, that really fucking mummed me up. But yeah, that was my first session. And he, he was doing it with a finger anyway, EMDR, and that didn't really work. So I just get, I just, that's, you know, as it went past his eyes, I'd look at his eyes. Next time I did it was with um, with the, the psychologist, Jackie, and I did it with um, buzzers, buttons, like you get on a hearing test, one in each hand. Right. Remember them all? Yeah. And they would vibrate. Um, yeah, they did have a button on. I said, I've got a picture with a button. They didn't have a button. They just things you hold. And they just went bzz, 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 like that. And I do it with my eyes shut. It's, it's, uh, it's to do with eye movement. I do it with my eyes shut, but under with my eyelids shut, I'll be moving my eyes like that as a buzzer, you know. Just sit forward like this. And um and that worked really well. It was really strange. I didn't I deliberately didn't read up on it. I knew that someone had done it before. I knew and my mate a mate of mine had said to me, fucking and he said like after them sessions, he couldn't drive or anything, he was just fucked. Like, really emotionally drained and stuff. Um so I knew they were quite intense or supposedly intense. But I didn't read up on it because I didn't want to I didn't want to have it in my mind how what should happen and then make it happen. I wanted it to happen naturally. And anyway, she'd like say something. She's like, right, is there a picture? You know, is there a thought that comes to your mind when you talk about this? And, yeah, there is actually. You know, it's like, what is that picture? And it's um, an, easy, uh, an easy example of one. Um, but uh, there's one where I was talking about my mate uh, Brian when I got told that Brian was dead. And I said, you know, I could picture myself sat in that tent. Um, my dog's just attacking me. I sat in the tent um, on my own, and I could picture it really clearly. I'm, I'm really, um, I, I, I'm a visual thinker. She's like, okay, hold that for. She says, let's let's do it. Let's go. So I'd like shut my eyes, thinking about me sat in that tent, and she's like, right, bam, bam. I like, go, I don't know how many times, maybe twenty times. Stop. Yeah. She says, what picture have you got in your mind now? Okay, so I'm still sat in that tent, but now I'll get more and more deep into that picture. I can hear this, and it's really bright. I'm wearing silly clothes, that's a bit weird because I wasn't wearing sillies at, at the time, I was in uniform. I'm wearing sandals, that's weird. Okay, buzz, 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 buzz. What now? I'm like, someone's just come in and told me that Bryce fucking missing. Anyway, this goes on and on. And then I think it's in that. Does this ring a bell, mate? I'm pretty sure it's in that book. But I'm not, I ended up running. Route from that tent, and it's geographically completely wrong to what, what the scenario was on the day, because they were they were in a different town completely. They were in Sangin, and I was in Cap Bastion. But I was turning up running in my mind's eye across the desert. It's like there's a drone or something videoing me, and then so there's loads of pauses right between buzz buzz buzz. But what to cut to, to summarize it? I'm running, and then my clothes start changing. I'm like you know, like an Iron Man or something like that. Bits start getting attached to me, like helmet, rifle, webbing, body armor, you know, all this stuff. And then all this, now I'm, I'm, I've got all my kit. And I'm just sprinting towards the, bar- the, the boundary wall, Camp Bastion. Because Bry's on the other side of that, on the, on the other side of the wall, on the other side of that, there's a cornfield, and on the other side of that, he's, he's lying there. And I can kind of see all this in my mind's eye. And I'm running, running, I'm getting heavier and heavier, but I'm going faster and faster. I'm like, like, a, like a fucking machine. 
and I just jumped straight over the wall. I, I leg it through the, all the cornfields again. This is all death, this is all in sections, you know. I'm like, right, what's happening now? Now I'm in a cornfield. Now I'm there, you know. So it's loads of different scenes there. And then I burst through the cornfield. And then Brian, I see my mate, uh, uh, Brian, Brian Bud lying there on his side. And then I'm just like, and I remember saying to her, I said, let's see these two blokes sat up on a hill. I still see it now. These two blokes sat up on a hill, looking down or grinning. And I think they fucking killed him. And I said, there's two blokes there. And she said, what are you thinking? And I said to her, no, I don't, I don't normally say this word. I know you probably want to cut it. I said, I want to fucking kill those cunts. I was fucking fuming. I was so fucking angry. And I was like, <sighs> you know, like I was there kind of thing. It's almost like being hypnotised, I guess. And um, anyway, it, play, it plays on. I realised, you know, Bri's dead. Um, she's like, you know, is there a word? And bloody hell, she's like, you know, what would you say to Bri? If you, if, what, is there a word? Is there something you want to say to him? And I said, yeah, there is. And I, and I put my hand in my, in my mind, I put my, hand, put my hand on his shoulder. And I said, I love you, mate. Oh, fucking hell. Get upset now. I said, I love you, mate. And then um, I looked up and I saw them blokes again, the same two blokes I really wanted to kill. And then I didn't, I, I didn't want to kill them anymore. It's really weird. Really weird. And I don't know why, or what symbol, if it symbolises anything, but, but I really wanted to, you know, even in that moment, you know, but I was always just totally honest, you know, because I didn't want to admit to her, my therapist, I don't want to kill them anymore. Because, you know, obviously I should want to kill them because I think they just killed him. But, you know, I was just on it, honest with her about it. I'm like, you know, he's um, best sat there. And they just didn't look. The next time I looked at him, even though he, he was dead, they may or may not have shot him. But I looked at him, they just didn't look sinister the next time I looked up. They just looked like two blokes sat there, kind of like they're looking out to, to the sea and enjoying the view. You know, he didn't look, uh, didn't look full of evil. Maybe they didn't kill him. I don't know. I don't know. Imagine, imaginary uh, scenario. But before that, uh, I was so fucking angry. But yeah, I mean, that happened a few times, a few sessions similar to that. They kind of come to a conclusion. And I, I could tell when they come to a conclusion because I'd be trying to uh, preempt what was happening next. You know, what? Buzz, 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 buzz. What do you see now? You'd be thinking, nothing's changed. Maybe what? And then you start thinking, oh, maybe uh, if I go and attack them blokes. That's not that's not natural. So it's you know, be a couple of them, no, nothing really, you know, and I just feel really sad or and it's trying to come to a natural conclusion. It's really hard to really hard to explain, really. But that was a that was that was a, a deep, deep session. And it's one of them where, you know, she's like brought me back out of it slow. They bring out of it quite slowly. Open your eyes and I open my eyes, look down, <laughs> my tears all over the floor, you know. There's a little really crappy old carpet. I don't really care. It was just a building needed a needed recap anyway. But yeah, I mean there'll be tissues there, and it always seems a little bit, I don't know. It's not very manly, is it, using a tissue? But I just kind of wipe my eyes like that, you know. I was like, fucking hell. I'd be tired, you know. I'd be really tired after them sessions, especially ones like that. I used to sort of go into a town and just walk around for a couple of hours and get a coffee and I didn't go back to work hardly ever after that. I just, you know, they worked really good actually. A couple of good mates made sure I was all right, but it wasn't a place to go. Especially some of the, you know, some of the job I was doing was like resistance to interrogation training as well, where you got to get into character and screaming and shouting and threatening. I thought this is not good for me. 
I stepped away from that quite early. But this this is not good. You know, the physiological effects of shouting at people and threatening them and it's only role play, you know, but it's not good for your mental health, especially if you're in a bad place already. Yeah, mate. I mean, I know you're asking about the EMDR, but that's that's kind of one of the sessions I really remember. But I did do quite a few of them, not loads and loads, but quite a lot. A lot of the sessions just kind of they either went that way or they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's very powerful to hear that one um, you know story you talk about finding Brian because to me, just from the outside looking in, I know one thing that I see in myself is some of that guilt and shame of not being able to save some of the people that I've responded on. You know, and I've been you know what we refer to as a bit of a black cloud in my career and had a lot of people that just died no matter what we did they just were gonna die and it almost seems to me like the people up on the cliff were almost like your guilt and shame like the blame that you had on yourself for not being there for being able to to save him and that once you know you'd spoken to him it was almost like self-forgiveness and that was why that that anger changed so i mean that's just you know kind of an interpretation of what you just told me but there's so much that we put on ourselves and guilt and shame is the absolute top of that. And when you lose someone, of course, you know, there's that part of you is that, well, if I had been there, they wouldn't be dead. Actually, you might both have been dead or, you know, who knows what the reality was, but yeah. So just, just that one of, of that whole, you know, smorgasbord of trauma that you've had in your life. And again, like you said, it's not self pity, And that's the thing people understand. It's not, you're not pulling out a violin and saying, Oh, I'm going to throw Steve a fucking pity party. But, it's like I talk about, it's not excuses, but it's reasons. There are reasons for all the shit that cause these things that go on in people's minds. And, you know, then if, if you just curl into a ball and don't do anything about it, that's not going to help anything. So you have to try and fight your way through it. But each of those traumas are valid, whether it was something as extreme as being a boy soldier, as I've had in, in one guest, or as being the middle child or feeling unloved in, in your childhood, which is another one. They impacted people, you know, similarly. So... And it's very powerful hearing that particular story. And, and I think especially the fit of the counselor. I've had so many people on here that went through what we call EAP, which is our mental health kind of part of our works insurance. Horror stories. You know, someone like you, someone like me saying, here's what I saw, here's what I'm dealing with. And the person in tears, or even worse, I've had some that were told to get out of the office, I can't help you. Imagine what that message that sends to a, a soldier, a responder, when you went to the one person that supposedly was an expert in this, and they told you you can't help you. Then, all right, well, I'll just go stick a gun in my mouth. Obviously, I am fucking crazy. I am a piece of shit, so I'm just going to go end it now. Thanks for, for you know verifying that. So sitting in front of the right person is so important, and there is nothing more basal that says, I don't really care than not knowing someone's name. So even though not blaming that that person, like you said, their caseload and everything, the counselors have such a responsibility. And I don't think that, you know, people realize like how how damaging the wrong counselor can be for that wrong individual. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's just, you know, the right one just guides you through. Just say like you know with that Jackie. Just say a, a couple of words and really resonate. Like, really get me thinking. Even like you know, is there a word that comes? I remember one one session. She's I was picturing so I had that snap. Something that made me the the, the the catalyst that made me go and get help. 
the second time when I actually listened was I uh, smashed up my hoover in front of my, because my missus said something. I was just so wound up about everything at the time. My wife said something as she walked past. I was just so fucking angry. I picked up the hoover and I just, because really what I wanted to do was fucking kill her right about in that second. Um, but I picked up the hoover above my head. I this is if the mind race works so fast, and I thought telly was mounted on the wall. I think, but I didn't go to Freya the telly, but in my mind, I processed it so fast, not the telly, not the window, you know, because you, know, you think that's going to cost or whatever. A you know, little bit of sanity I've got hold of, and I just slammed it into the floor and broke it. And Henry Hoover. And then my wife said something like, no, no, you broke the Henry. Well done, or something like that. And I was just, you know. I looked at my kids, and they just looked terrified, you know. They looked, they looked scared. And, um, and I did a really awful fucking hell. Uh, anyway, I was telling my therapist about this. And she said, is there a word that comes to mind? And there was a word. And it was flashing. I can still see it now. It was flashing in uh, white, white, bold um, letters, capital letters. And the word was bully. And I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to say it because, you know, I'm not intimate. You know, obviously, scaring my wife. So I'm scaring my kids. I don't think I've ever actually told anyone this before. I don't think I've ever said about it, told anyone about it, because it's embarrassing. But yeah, the word was busted. There is a word, actually. Yeah, and I did. I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to think. You know, I've always, I've been, always been the anti-bully. You know, I saw. Well, I was for a lot, a lot of my And I said, "Yeah, there is a word, bully." And I thought, "Fuck, man, is that, is that me? Is that me? Am I, am I a fucking bully?" And that made me feel really shit. Really bad. You know, my kids, you know, probably still remember that. That was a moment of rage. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. You know, I slammed that hoover into the floor, saw them upset, ran, went upstairs, got my trainers, and put my shorts on, got the dog in his lead, and just went out for a run. My, I was out the door probably within a minute. We did nine miles, I think. It's quite hilly where I live, so nine, nine, you know, nine miles is, is, a, is a, good, a good distance, especially around there. But um, there's one session, actually, I'll tell you about it if you want to hear it, which is really, uh, this is really deep one as well. This is EMDR. You know, uh, again, there's something you, you can read in, us, in that book. But it was, um, she wanted, the, the therapist wanted me to go to like, my happy place. You know, where are you happiest? And I thought, where am I happiest, you know? And when you're, not, when you're unhappy all the time, you don't. You can't imagine being happy or when you're depressed. You can't imagine it. You can't even imagine. People say to me, what would you do if you won the lottery? I'm like, I honestly don't know. What would you buy? What would you buy? I'm like, where would you go? I'm like, most of the time I'm like, I don't know because I can't think what it, what it is that would make me you know, full of joy. Now, I'd love to be that person full of joy. I really would. I really, really wish I was, but I'm not, you know, and I really, really, really wish I could be that person. You're laughing all the time and, you know, I love seeing people like that. I think you've, you're so lucky, you know. But she's aware, aware, and I thought, well, the place I like to go to most is, is the forest. So she's like, all right, you know, can you picture yourself there? Is there somewhere? I said, yeah, and there's a place we've been teaching. And um, it's not too far from where we live. And I pictured myself on the track in that forest. You know, I know quite well. And she's like, okay, you know, doing the thing with the buzzers in her hands. You know, I end up walking to come to a clearing in the forest. You know, I go into this clearing. Let's see. You get it right, this is in stages, right? I'm just going to speak my story through it, right? And then I'm kind of like, I don't know if you can really see. I kind of like, it's down like this, head down like this, and then I levitate. My feet come off the ground, 
and it's like there's a drone or something flying around me. Right? So I'm like, there's a clearing in the forest. Trees are probably 25, 30 feet tall. So I'm surrounded by trees on three sides. And then this thing starts flying around. But it, as I go up, it sort of stays where it is. I'm, I'm looking up at myself now and I'm just kind of like, Almost like um, you see some sort of angels. Is it David Beckham? I think's got a tail on his back. Someone like with a head down like that, maybe. I didn't have wings or anything. I'm just, I'm just levitating. And I said, and she's like, "How do you feel?" And I was like, "I feel great. I feel happy. I feel like there's a massive weight just come off my shoulders. I'm like, I feel weightless, you know." It's like, it's like, then that's why I was sort of floating, you know, because there's nothing bearing bearing down on me. I think that's why I was just lifting up, floating up into the air. And this is, you know, this is probably over this whole, you know, this whole uh, picture vision is probably over like forty minutes or so. Right? So I'm really breaking it, uh, breaking it down. And she says, "And what's happening now?" I don't, and then it, I just, it just dawned on me, and it was really, <laughs> it was another time that was really fucking sad. I don't want to make therapy sound all sad because it's not all sad, but I realised what would happen. I said, and I said to her, "I realise, I realise." I realised what's happening, or what's just happened. She said, well, "What is it?" I said, "I'm dead." Like that, you know, in that vision. I said, "I'm, I'm dead," and I, you know, and I was right. That's what had happened, you know. And I was like, "Fuck," and that's why I felt so good, you know, because I was fucking dead and all the <laughs> there was no nothing there, nothing to worry about anymore. You know, my troubles were over, kind of thing. And I was like, oh, "Fuck," and I realised it, you know. I'm like, oh man. It was so good. You know, it seemed like such a positive session up until that point. And I didn't, and the only reason I didn't want to say that to her, even though I knew it was what was happening you know, in that uh, vision, was that I, I died. And that's why I felt so good. It's because I thought, this isn't what she's probably, this is probably not what she wanted to happen at all. And I don't want her to feel bad. And I don't want her to feel like she's, you know, the session's been a failure or anything. This, and I thought, you know, she might, this might make her think like she's done something wrong now. I didn't want to say it. But like I say, I was only ever honest in them sessions. So I did, and I said, I'm dead. She was like, oh. And I can't really remember the rest of it, but, you know, we kind of, wow, that was kind of where that one ended. But I realised, you know, I was actually, you know, the idea of being dead was actually really, uh, really, um, what's the word, a great, it was a really nice, nice thought. At that time, yeah, it was another session with EMDR. But you know, they don't all end up like that. But a lot, they are deep. They are deep. If you let, if you let yourself go with it, which is you know what I tried to do, they are quite fucking deep. Now, have you ever tried um, MDMA or uh, psilocybin? Um, I've had quite a few Navy SEALs on here. Just yesterday, maybe. And there was a, a documentary that talked about psilocybin. I've never heard of it until then. And now you just mentioned it. That's weird. Yeah. So what I found, so you have, you know, I'm, I'm lucky now four and a half hours, uh, four and a half hours, four and a half years into this project. You know, I've got to talk to all these, all these people with different backgrounds. Some have been down, you know, their own paths of trauma and, and some have had great success. And, and it, it can be varied from equine therapy to yoga to, you know, a certain you know, drug that maybe works well for them, but especially in the SEAL community, Navy SEALs, it's really weird, but a lot of them have actually gone to psilocybin, which have 
basically, from what I understand is, is you know, you think of magic mushrooms as kind of one of the compounds that gives you that, you know, that um, effect. Um, but it's a double-pronged attack because it also supposedly is the only ca- chemical at the moment that they can see actually helps heal the damage from TBIs as well. So in the military, obviously, you've got sleep deprivation, you've got the trauma that you see, you've got shit that you know you brought into the uniform, but then you've also got all the impacts that you took, whether you're firing weapons, whether you're getting bombed or you know whatever it is. Um, and that's kind of what I'm getting from some of those stories. And it seems like it might be something that would would work for you because they're having those kind of feelings for real, and they're being detached from their reality. And and this this life is kind of reframed. And the people that that have had this are from you know even though they're all seals, they're all walks of life. You know, from seal, you know, higher, higher, you know, top top of the 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 command structure all the way through to you know seal team six guys that were you know there and all the big high profile things but yeah that that removing yourself from what we've defined as our life at the moment and realizing that we're actually part of something way big whatever it is whether you believe in you know god or you know buddha or you know whatever or just the universe but that seems something that's like so so profound and so healing for a lot of these these men men in this particular case so that might be something to i don't know what the access is in britain obviously our backwards drug prohibition prohibition laws stop it in the uk stop it in america so you have to go to other countries but um i would say if you just heard that that's a sign too because that if you having that sense of peace in that one emdr session i can see how that uh, that experience may well open some more doors for happiness that you can actually keep once that session's done yeah, it's, a, it's so weird how you, uh, how you mentioned that. I've never heard of it. I think it was last night, if not the night before. It was very recent. Um, psilocybin, yeah. And they, um, I'm not, again, I, I, I doubt it's accessible. I've never even heard of it in the UK until that TV uh, documentary. But there was, I think they were saying that they take it like once every, it's not like a, uh, it's not like a daily medication. It's like a once a month or something like that. I think they were taking it. But there's these really sort of, uh, not out-of-body experiences, but like uh, tripping like. Oh, I would imagine. They were showing him, uh, they were taking it all under really controlled circumstances with two therapists sat next to him on a bed, blindfold music. And most of them had a really, um, seemed to have a really positive experience. It was interesting to watch because obviously being in the military, you're just completely away from drugs or anything like that. There might be a lot of hallucinogenic, but you're very naive. Well, I certainly was, I still am, uh, in, the, in the military about actual drugs as much as i smoked yeah, i did a little bit when i was a kid when i was going off the rails i did take some drugs but i never really understood understood what i was doing but i know in civvy street i don't know but i'm told in civvy street everyone's doing drugs and like cocaine and things like that it's like everywhere apparently you know but in the military you don't you know that's like what the fuck man that's like it's unbelievable you don't you don't see it you don't Hear of it? No one does it, but it seems like quite normal conversation in civil street. People talking about things like cocaine and that, but yeah, it's like that psilocybin. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really, it sounds really interesting. That's just yeah, really weird how that comes up today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to send you. I think um, Jeff Nichols, his most recent one. He was very, very, um, yeah. You know, honest about what he did you know and, and how it helped him and um he you know he's seal team six 
previous so you know and also a strength and conditioning coach within that community so he's a high level you know highly respected coach highly respected operator um and has been very very courageous and honest about his battle with addiction and, and again you know anger management all these kind of anger man- management sounds such a stupid word but anger manifesting from trauma would be a better way to describe it so i'll send you that there's another one i'll send you dr ben sessa he's out at the university of bristol and they use MDMA, which is basically one of the camp- compounds in ecstasy, during um, psychotherapy as well. So some of these these barriers, these these walls that might still be up, they tend to come down because now you're all loved up, as we used to say back in the, the rave generation. Um, and so you're then able to talk through some areas that maybe you just couldn't even get to before because it was locked down so tight in your mind. So, I mean, again, uh, that's one of, the, one of the reasons why I talk about you know, the reversal of drug prohibition, um, because not only are we, you know, at the moment locking away addicts, mental health patients, which makes no sense to me, but we're also stopping our military that died for our country or lost limbs for our country or, you know, brought home trauma mentally, and we can't even get them the best treatment, you know. So I think um, I'll send you those two and then, you know, kind of see if that sends you anywhere. But Ben Sessa definitely would be a, a good person. I know it's still... um uh, what's the word? There's still clinical trials at the moment because they're waiting for the prohibition to be loosened in the UK. But I mean, as a veteran, I'm sure you'd be able to qualify for that program too. Oh, yeah, yeah, cheers for that. I'll try anything really. You know, I think I'm in a fairly good place, and for now, anyway, I kind of uh, it's after it's after we spoke actually after that first Skype call we did. You told me you'd uh, kind of stop doing what you were doing with the fire service and gone full time with your um, your podcasting. And it's a couple of days after that I uh, I told them well, I spoke to my wife about it and I said, you know what, I think I'm gonna try and concentrate on writing full time. It's, it's very therapeutic, you know, the stuff I had written up, that stuff that you've got and I'm writing a second part to I kind of follow on to that to that book. And I've already written a fiction novel which took me a long time to write anyway. You know, um you know so I've got I think in the next couple of months I'll have three Three books out all together. So I'm thinking, if, let's just give it a go. See what's the worst that can happen. I thought, you know, and you saying uh, you've done it, and I thought you got to take that leap of faith. If it goes wrong, I can afford to pay myself for, a, you know, I reckon a year because you just sold a house. So that's where I am, mate. So yeah, you kind of uh, you kind of give me the give me the push. I'm not going to blame you if it goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, that kind of uh, yeah, that was. That was, that was the thing that kind of helped me make that decision, to be fair, mate. And I thought, yeah, you know what, you're doing something that you enjoy. You were saying, you know, you, do, you, know, you enjoy it, it's something you can enjoy. And I'm like, you know what, where I was working, I weren't really enjoying it. Um, I'm not really cut out too well for Subi Street. Give it a go, eh? Might as well. So that's what I'm going to do, yeah. Give it, you know. Then I think that at a minute, that's put me in um, quite, a, quite a good place, really. No stresses, you know. The stresses is just trying to write two or 3,000 words a day. But that's not, I mean, there's worse stresses than that. Yeah. Well, and you and I both came from a very rigid organization, even though I, I moved from department to department. So there were some great ones in that mix and some really awful ones. But the lack of autonomy is another stressor. You know, when when you're, what I found in, in the last one I worked was I wanted to be that aggressive paramedic firefighter, you know, like training and education and getting extra classes and stuff but i got pushback they didn't want that they just shut up you know sit down shut up you know but what 
we're not ready for this and this. We're not prepared for this area. Yeah, yeah, we're fine. We're fine. So that was stressful to me because I could anticipate, you know, people dying. God forbid shit hit the fan in that area that we protected. So removing yourself from those organizations and realizing that, that Steve Brown can do whatever the hell Steve Brown wants to do now, you know, I find that is yet another healing element for the mental health side too. And then when I wrote my book, that was very cathartic as well, getting all the mania from my head and putting it in some sort of sense, you know, on paper. Yeah, someone wrote that to me. I had to, I had to Google it because I'd only ever heard that word once before, I think cathartic. I thought, I think I know what it means, but one of my mates uh, put a review on, on Amazon uh, and he put, I hope it was a cathartic experience. And I thought, right, just check what that means. And, um, it was, yeah, it was cathartic. And it's, you know, it's, and it's actually got me in touch with loads and loads of people, some people I've not spoken to for 25 years, you know, just the people who've like, reached out to me. A few people have reached out to me and uh, they were struggling with their mental health as well. You know, I say to them, look, mate, I'm not in the army anymore. You can, that's because a lot of them are still serving, you know. So I say to them, you know, you can talk to me. I'm not, it's not going to go anywhere. I'm not going to rip, you know, you're not going to risk your job. There's so many, uh, you know, so many blokes out there who've got mental health problems. They even know, you know, mental health is quite a, a common phrase nowadays, very common. Um, people say, you know, but they don't want to, they don't want to raise it. I've got friends in the military who've, who've actually paid uh, civvies. Civic therapist, you know, outside of not even let, uh, not even let work know that I've seen a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist because they're all, they're all worried about getting downgraded or, you know, medically discharged. It's crazy. I had a mate, uh, guys in, in the special forces over here uh, a while ago telling me um, basically that he, he's really, really struggling with his mental health, like really bad. And he's, he's a good, really good guy. He, he's not the sort of bloke to talk shit about it. You know, straight up, he must have been he must be turmoil for him to say it, you know. And uh, he said, "Well, I said, mate, you know, go go see go to the doc. There's a system in place. It, you know, it, it does it might help you out." And he said, "No, there's no point, mate." He said, "Because um, they, you know, they get extra pay and their special forces and stuff as well." And he said, "You know, I can't risk it. I can't risk losing my pension. I, I can't risk losing the pay. I've got a house to pay for and all this." And he said, I'll, I'll, "I'll I'll do it when I get out." And I said, "How long have you got left?" He said, eight years. So he's going to struggle now for, and that was probably, that was at least a year ago. I, I had that conversation, maybe two years ago. So there's a guy who's at the top end, you know, the tip of the spear. He knows he's got mental health problems and he's going to just crack on for another eight, ten years in that role, you know, because he's worried about the treatment, he'll, the subsequent treatment he'll get. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. But, in a way, he's not wrong because actually, if you do, you know, once you start taking antidepressants, I think, you know, and you get these kind of diagnosis, then rightly so, then you're not allowed to handle weapons, ammunition, things like that. You're non deployable. And if you're non deployable, especially like in special forces roles and that, you know, you're not quite as employable. And they might look to, look to getting you out, out of there, you know, so they can pay someone else. It's really difficult balance. It's really difficult for the blokes. I did it. I mean, I did it the last when I did eventually get help. It was in, I was in my last sort of seven months or so, so it didn't really matter. You know, I was I was leaving. I was leaving anyway, and I just like I said to the doctor, I don't want to leave a basket case. That's what I felt like I was doing. But I've got mates who have, you know, they've 
as you dread to think, really. They're fucking crackpots, really, and they're mad. They're only going to get worse. They're only getting worse year by year. And, uh, you know, you know, they've got kid wives and kids and everyone's going to struggle. You know, everyone's going to suffer, not just them, but it's, it comes down to money and security and, you know, they've got to provide for their family. And, you know, and the provision for their family comes from their job. And they can't risk it. But it's not, it's not an easy answer. It's not an easy answer for that because they're not wrong. You know, it's like mummy says, you know, if I, I might lose my job. And I'm like, yeah, you might. And I'm not going to say, no, 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 you won't. But by, you know, by the rules, really, they shouldn't be able to discharge you for that. But there's ways, you know, there's ways of making you want to leave it. If nothing else, because you can't do your job anymore, the job that you, uh, the job you enjoy. So it's really difficult for a lot of people. There's loads of, like, you know, I, I kind of, I thought this years ago, you know, when you used to watch the film, like John Rambo, all these, all these ex-Vietnam, they're all fucking crazy. You know, there was that sort of generation. And uh, I, thought, I don't think we've quite hit it yet, but I think we're going to have that generation of Afghan vets, Afghan Iraq, you know, and it it's, can't be far off. It can't be far off because they say, I think they say like 10 to 12 years for a lot of people, like PTSD for it to manifest. So there must be loads of nutters out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's the problem as well, is that if you have an environment that you feel like you can't be honest about your mental health, that's the wrong environment, you know? And, and what's so sad, I, I hurt my back like seven years ago, lifting a patient. And it was, again, lifting... The lifting the patient was absolutely straw that broke the camel's back, no pun intended, but it was a, you know, the accumulation of all the shit prior, all the lack of sleep, all the, you know, all the compounding elements. But I was kind of offered like painkillers and steroids and all this shit. And then, you know, I'm sure the next step for them would have been surgery. I'm like, no, no, there's a reason why I, I hurt my back. There's obviously imbalances and things. I'm going to address that. I'm not going to just slice and dice my body. And it sucked. And it took like, you know, five months to rehab myself back, but I did. And I'd addressed the causes. So therefore I was stronger than I ever was before after the injury. That's how we have to look at mental health. Like you take someone who's a high level operator, they're an incredible, you know, machine, you know, uh, operational machine. So what you have to do is help them through whatever challenges they have and some of those may well be before they even entered you know SAS, SBS, whatever you know they they found themselves in now you're going to be even better the 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 high level football players and you know basketball players and what they have people to help them be better at their sport but yet it's kind of taboo us doing this in the fire and the police and the military you know but those people can work through that trauma and you'll be even more resilient than you were before instead you know they don't say anything and they end up you know hanging from their freaking bedroom ceiling one day you know so that's the that's what's so heartbreaking is that there's as you said you break a leg no one no one bats an eyelid you say my head's broken you know everyone loses their fucking mind oh don't you know lock up the lock up the ammunition and it's that's no you just you help them through it you help them address whatever's going on some may end up being on meds and i get that if if you're relying on a prescription that you need you know deployed that might be a challenge but most mental health challenges usually don't rely they rely on the counseling and some of these things and you work through it and then you get to the other side so you know what we need to do is is take that stigma away where our our military and our police officers don't have all the guns and badges taken away the moment they, they just go get help 
The same way as you go to the, you know, the ER and get your femur fixed or go to the PT in Cairo for your back. Or, But it's so separate at the moment that everyone thinks, oh, you're a combat veteran, therefore you're going to go and shoot up a school, which couldn't be further from the truth. You know, so... Yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's, that's sad that we're still in an environment where, you know, I know police officers here and then, you know, the, the gentleman you're talking about are in an environment where their silence is, they feel like their only option because you and I both know that the more you press that down, the higher chance of that final release being explosive and maybe, you know, towards people outside you or towards yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, uh, there's no easy option. I, I think there's another story in that, in that book where, uh, where one of my blokes, I got one, one of my blokes was talking about um, committing suicide. This is when I was a sergeant major at Pathfinders, and one of one of the uh, uh, other lads uh, came uh, in to see me and said, uh, "Mukherjee's on about fucking killing himself, like you know." And the blokes had found him out in an alleyway uh, on a night when they'd gone out one night and just like curled up in a ball crying like next to the bins and stuff. He'd had a he'd had a, a nasty injury, brain injury. Um, he'd gone through quite a lot of medical stuff, and he was getting discharged, medically discharged. But which, like you know, generally worried about their mate, you know. So I called him in. I said, "Don't worry, like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell tell him you told me or anything." I'd never dealt with anything like that. I had any training and anything like that. But you know, I can I feel like I can talk to people, you know. I think being honest and open with people out there opens a lot of doors. And um, yeah, anyway, I got him. I said, hey, mate, can I have a chat? I had him in my office. And I said, uh, listen, no one's, no one's come, no one's told me anything directly. I said, no. But I said, I keep my ear to the ground. And I just overheard a couple of blokes earlier saying, talking about you. And they mentioned that you might be thinking about suicide. And he was just like, just straight up, no hiding at all. He went, yeah, that's right. Bold as brass. And I was like, oh, okay, no, I thought it was going to be harder than that, you know. I was like, okay, mate. I you know, I said, uh, what's going on there, you know? What, what makes you feel like that? And he started telling me, this has happened, that's happened. Fuck them, fuck this. I'm going to fucking kill myself. But before I do it, I'm going to kill all these pricks who've been involved in my in my medical case and my fucking solicitor and this medic and this doctor. I was like, fucking hell. He was like, all right, mate. I said, listen. You don't need to feel like that. You know, you're not on your own. I said, we're here for you in a pathway. Pathway is only small. You know, it's about 40 blokes there at a time. I was like, mate, you know, we're, we're here for you. I'm here for you. Blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. And he basically said, look, the only people he trusted were the pathfinders. And the only people he didn't hate really were not parachute regiment and pathfinders. Everyone else. No time for him. Everyone had betrayed him. Everyone had let him down. You know, he wanted to be dead, but he wanted to make sure other people went with him, sort of thing. I was like, okay, mate. So I had him in there. When he left, I looked at my watch, he'd been an hour and a half. Didn't even make him a brew either. It's a bit jacked, really. But it kind of just flew past, you know, and I was like, fucking hell. I said, all right, mate, you know. I said, you know, and I was like, well, listen, I'm here for you. Come and talk to me whenever you want. You know, the bloke, we're all here for you, mate. You know, you don't, don't, don't need to feel like that. Left it. Went straight and see the boss. I said, fuck me, you wouldn't believe the conversation I've just had. With, uh, I call him Billy in the book, right? With Billy. Told him, he's like, fucking hell. I said, I can't sit on this. I can't fucking sit on this information. You know, it's just, what the fuck am I supposed to do here? This is a nightmare. So I was like, Pfft. So we got, they had this program called Wismis Wounded, Injured, Sick. 
I can't even remember what it would stand for. But um, information something in, in management information system. Anyway, there was there was a civil servant who worked in in, a, in, in garrison. He dealt with that. And the old soldiers who got like, injuries or medical uh, mental health for that sort of stuff. So I phoned a phone demo. I said, oh, I'm just bloody blah. I said, I just, I've, I've just had a conversation. I need some, need some help here. I need a bit of direction. One of my blokes has just told me, and I don't know what I just told you. And she says, uh, oh, it's not Billy, is it? I thought, yeah, it is actually. She went, oh, he, won't, he won't kill himself. He's been, he's been talking like that for ages. He's not going to kill himself. And I went, well, I'm fucking glad you think that. I said, because I've just been talking to him for an hour and a half. And I'm not so fucking sure. She's like, no, no, he's not going to do anything. No, he just, he just talks like that all the time. No. Anyway, that came, that came to nothing. So I was like, fuck. So I went to the mental health place, the Department of Clinical Mental Health, which we had on, on the camp. Saw them. They were good enough to speak to me, at least. But they were like, we can't do anything. He has, has to be referred to us. We can't take people directly. They have to be referred by the, by the doctor. I was like, fuck. So then I went down to medical centre, get an appointment with a doctor. I told him. He's like, right, send him down to see me uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll have a chat with him. I said, he, don't, he won't come to the medical centre. I said, this, he hates the whole medical system. He won't come. I said, I can tell him all I want, but he won't fucking come. He's, and then he's like, well, well, this bloke was, to, be, to his credit, these people, most of these people were actually trying to help me. He said, right, well, he said, tell him, make an appointment for him, tell him it's a parade, and if he misses the parade, you can get charged for that, right? So I could bollock him for not going to see the medical centre. I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, I'm not going to charge him. I'm not going to threaten to charge him. I'm one of the few people he trusts. He's like, right, there's one. There's only one solution. I said, go on, then. And this bloke was a, a, a military doctor. He says, section him. I went, fucking hell. Really? And he went, yeah, that's going to have to section him. I said, well, who, who does that? He says, you do. He's like, are you fucking serious? I said, I'd section him. He says, yeah. I said, I'd section him. I said, I've just, he, I'm one of the few people he trusts. And you're telling me to fucking section him. I said, then he'd have no one to trust. He's like, there's no other way around it. I said, are you fucking for real? I was like, ugh. Enough, you know, and that, that's pretty much where it ended. Not long after that, I mean, I tried out and I backed everything out of emails, as you, you know, as you have to these days. I said, everyone I spoke to, I sent them an email, you know, for like fucking to proof. And bloke, some mates just said to me, oh, good job you did that. That covers your ass. I'm not, I'm not trying to cover my ass, mate. It's not about that. So I'm actually trying to get, put some pressure on these people so they fucking help him. But I was on my way out at the time. I was, on, I was getting posted out of the pathfinders. I was going back to, uh, getting posted to another job. But, you know, I, I left them. Not long after that, I think he left and he's a, he's a, he's a civvy. But, you know, as far as I know, he's, he's you know, he, he's doing all right. I don't, I don't know. No one really hears from him. He didn't want to leave in presentation or anything. He just wanted to go. You know, he's, um, but he was, you know, he was really fucking struggling. And I tried, you know, as far as I, I tried and I, and I can only look back at it and think I really did. I really did just try, try everything I could to, to get him uh, escalated, if you like, you know. Just came to nothing. The bloke just left. One day, you know, he might well do that. He might well go on a shooting spree. He's on about doing it, going on a shooting spree. Maybe he will one day. 
lucky now. I knew they told me he was going to do that 10 years ago. Yeah. Crazy. I've had someone on here that, that talked about that. You know, they, they had so much compounding stress and that was, you know, usually suicidal tendencies, but I've had a couple where they talked about homicidal tendencies too, you know, so it's a real thing. And I think that's what's sad as well. Another compounding, huge, huge compounding element to, to mental ill health is when you lose that tribe. So the Pathfinders and the Powers were his tribe, and now he's not even in that. He hasn't even got that group around him. He's, you know, firefighters and police and medics. And every, you know, when we retire, and that door closes behind us, and you've given them your ID, and that's it. You're not in the fire service anymore. You know, there's people that transition very well, don't get me wrong, that have set things up and have other tribes, whether it's CrossFit gyms or, you know, whatever. But, yeah, you know, if we if we take them from that tribe and literally kind of boot them out, you know, the front door, then, you know, you're just adding yet another compounding element to this whole, you know, perfect storm that is you know, ill health and God forbid, even suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been a couple of mates commit suicide and a couple of mates um, die under quite strange circumstances. You know, over the last few years, it's, yeah. Uh, like you were saying earlier, you know, there's a lot of this stuff probably preventable. You know, a lot of this stuff is early intervention. And then again, you know, they're talking about my mate who told me he's, uh, he needs help but won't risk taking it. He could well be another one of them people in a, in a few years' time. You know, it's 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 a really difficult. I don't, I, you know, I haven't got the I haven't got the answer. I got the answer for me was was he, you know, worked eventually. Or even though, like, you know, the first time I went around it, I got rejected with one of mental health people. Sort of, yeah, you know, we don't think we've got PTSD. I was like, fucking didn't say I did. You know, what you're on about? And then, but then that was probably four or five years later where I kind of went again. I thought, no, I really, I really do fucking need someone to help me out. Here. Even, you know, that four, that's another four or five years where my mental health probably, probably deteriorated, you know, because I, I think, I think I started. So I, I was kind of like, um, I thought that maybe it was because I'd been promoted. I was a sergeant, and my, you know, as you go through the ranks, I'm sure it's the same in every service. Your circle of friends gets smaller and smaller because you're starting to discipline people and having, having to tell people what to do and telling them off. And I thought maybe um, I, I just couldn't remember being happy before 2006. Uh, well, after, since 2006. And I thought, wow, well, it's because I got promoted, you know, and the stresses with the new job. And, and all that, but then I think, well, it's the same time I, you know, I did, I did, I think I did six operation tours in about it was between seven and two thousand and six. So let's say ten years, nine or ten years after six, very different. Like all very different operation tours. And then my last opera, that was my last operation tour, two thousand six, in a long time. Ago. But I'd, I've not really had any joy, if you like. Since then, and I just put it down to rank. I think probably it's an accumulation, like you, you kind of touched on earlier, accumulation of all that stuff, and all that stress, and then, you know, it's the same as everyone else has got us been through my situation. I think probably that's probably when my mental health started going to rat shit, and it's probably you know the, the final straw was probably uh, that Afghan tour. You know, when my son was my son was being born and. A lot went on, Brian. You know, mates got killed. You know, but, just, but at the same time, it's, you know, I, it's, uh, I, I'm very uh, honest about it. There's it's thousands of blokes who had a much, much worse time in Afghanistan than I did. You know, thousands of them. 
thousands of them. But that's not to say they're not, you know, like a bit mad like me. You know, maybe they are, maybe they're not. Maybe they don't want to admit they are. I don't know. But um, it doesn't stop it. You know, it doesn't. Just because someone's had a harder time than me doesn't mean that I have, you know, my brain isn't a bit a bit messed up. You know, I've still got the right to, uh, you know, to acknowledge that I'm not, not quite right. Well, I think it's important as well that these conversations are heard. And I always say this, you're like, the reason why this podcast has done well isn't because of me. I'm sitting here, I've probably add all my words together. It's probably 15 minutes in this whole conversation. So that's the whole point is it's the people that come on and tell their story, you know, whether it's, like I said, a, a you know, a boy soldier in Sierra Leone, whether it's a British para pathfinder, whether it's an American Navy SEAL or, you know, a high level strength and conditioning coach, whatever it is, these these storytelling, you know, these these stories that we hear, these storytellers are what resonate with human beings. You know, so this is this is the answer. And I hope that maybe even your special forces friend might listen to this episode and maybe realize that his mental and physical health is more important than that pension. And you can transition with that amazing skill set and don't worry about the pension. Get out and go do something phenomenal in the civilian world with the same purpose that you had that made you join special forces. But another side of this is obviously books. Now, your book, uh, You'd Be Nuts Too, which I think is a brilliant title, um, you know, again, is is this kind of splattering of of funny stories from your youth, from the military, but then ingrained in that are obviously some of these very courageous, you know, vulnerable stories of when you're in counseling and some of them you touched on here. So for people listening, where can they find this book and then tell us about, you know, the other, you know, the second part of this and then the fictional book and then kind of some idea on when they're going to be out to. <laughs> Um, so that book I self-published on Amazon. So that's that's the only place you can get it. I think it's on an ebook or a uh, paperback, like what you've got there. I think it's available all around. I'm not exactly sure, mate. I think you got it through Amazon.com, didn't you? Yeah, I think we we tried it and we initially, and then it, it didn't seem like it was there. And then um, I think you changed some settings. So I believe now everyone listening in the US can get it directly from here as well. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. Like I said, I'm not the best with IT, but I. I, I, I kind of muddle my way through but um yeah so, so since writing that uh, that one you'd be nice too um i've started writing another one which is basically going to be you'd be nuts too too but i'd have to call it something else it'd be too confusing um this is where like uh, there's so many other stories i've got like lots of much but these ones are uh, uh, there's not so much uh, i don't think there'll be there might not even be any psychotherapy type stuff in this next one it's just all about I'm not, the title I'm thinking of calling it is my mates are madder than yours because it's mostly about my mates who are fucking who are madder than yours. Like I, I, would, I put money on it. Um, yeah, years ago actually, tangent. My, I was talking to my 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 wife, which is my girlfriend at the time, and I started a story like I normally do. I said, ah, uh, oh, my mate Mick, and I was like, he's mad as fuck. And then I went to carry on, and she stopped me, and she says. Are any of your mates not mad? So I, that's how all my stories seem to start. You know? And I was, it was, it was a, qu- a genuine question. I was just like, mm. I actually had to think about it. You know? I was like, hmm. Um, and I'm like, nah. I think pretty much all of them are, are a bit fucking crackers. Like, you know? And a Will Bundy, your mate, my mate, he said to me, uh, he, I always, I've been, I send him my little snippets of the story as I write them. And as you like, like in a book you've got, they're all short stories, a couple of pages or so. 
And I send them to Will, well, he's out so he can read them out in the full. So I do them, I send them like a couple at a time, like every couple of nights or whatever. He looks forward to that. And um, he said to me ages ago, you just write a book. He said, you'd have to call it Definitely Mad, Probably Dead. And he said, because all your stories are like that about your mates, and they're all fucking definitely mad. And a lot of them are dead. And I was like, yeah, you know, that probably would be quite a good uh, good title. But, um, yeah, so that's kind of, um, yeah, so anyway, I'm writing a, a second part of that now. I'm about halfway, you know, about 30,000 words in, into that one. It's just more, more crazy stories about people I know in the military doing crazy stuff. And, you know, it's like the more sort of shake your head, you know, laugh. You know, so feedback on that first one. I, hopefully, it made you laugh as well, mate. But you know, a lot of people have said to me it has made them laugh, and and, it, and it's a lot of people, even Will Bundy, me, Mike Bundy, me must say it out loud. He told me that you know it made him cry. Um, some of it, you know, it's a lot of deep stuff, but a lot of funny stuff. And then, um, so that, I'm hoping to get that one out probably in uh, the second part of that in the next sort of uh, couple of months. And uh, the way it all started, mate, was in 2006. 2006, I started writing a book. A fictional book. Well, I just started writing a story to pass some time, actually. And um, when I was in Afghanistan, because we got there, apart from the normal places a bit before everyone else. So we, we were uh, we had a couple of patrols cancelled basically because the risk was too high and there was no sort of, uh, uh, no support if we got in trouble for, for the area we were working. And um, I thought, you know, I'll keep myself entertained for a couple of hours. And I'm just going to write a little story. And I haven't written a story. I mean. I'm, I'm terrible, really. I, mean, I got kicked out of school. Uh, I didn't even finish school. Didn't even sit GCSEs because I, I got expelled. But you know, I can write. And I started writing a story, and I filled up my notebook. And then uh, eventually, someone said to me, "Do you want to borrow my laptop, mate?" And I was like, "Yeah, oh, go on then, mate. Cheers." And I borrowed uh, my my, mechanic, my vehicle mechanic, my good lady. He lent me his laptop. He started typing it up, and it just got bigger and bigger. And then you know, the tour the tour ended, and I've got posts, a few different postings here and there and everywhere. And just every now and then I sit down and write like you know a couple of thousand words, and then um, I sat I knuckled down to it last probably middle of last year. Thought let's just finish this fucking book. Uh, you know it, it might not might not sell. It might be a lot of crap, but it might you know everyone who read the part so far were like oh, that's really good. You know you should finish that. So I'll finish that. I'll finish that in November, and then I um, I started looking into how I could get it published. And then while I was doing that, I, I wrote the other one, the one you've got. Um, and it took me two, a couple of months, and I thought, you know what, I'll publish that one first on Amazon and, uh, and learn the ropes and see how we get on. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm thinking of uh, maybe publishing that today or tomorrow. The, uh, the That'll be the fiction. It's called. It's going to be called Meatheads. And then um, that's about that. That's basically about Pathfinder, or a, a unit very similar to Pathfinder, doing like a, uh, a Halo airborne mission into into a compound in Afghanistan and there's lots, there's lots of violence and a uh, fair bit of comedy and that but yeah more quite a lot of violence and bloodshed it's quite good I think quite graphic and then um, yeah and hopefully the, the, the second book part and then you'll be not sure that out in a couple of months so never know, mate. You know, I might have three books out in the next couple of months I'm going to be looking forward to uh, you know reading both of those um and uh, like I said, I loved your first one. You'd be nuts too. So everyone listening out there, I highly recommend you get that. Uh, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to learn more about you, um, where are the best places online or social media? So I'm on, I'm on Facebook and I'm pretty sure I'm just Steve Brown. Ugh, there's loads and loads of Steve Browns. I need to work on that, don't I? We've thought about that one, mate. Um, on, 
On Instagram, I'm Force of Nature. It's um, Force with uh, number four, O-R-C-E, underscore of underscore nature. I can send you, I can send that to you if you like, mate. Um, yeah, I know, I know on Facebook, I think I'm quite hard to find, actually. I need to change it because I'm just I'm Steve Brown and there's thousands of us. Yeah, it's kind of a, I'm going to say a common name, a well-used name. <laughs> it's common. Yeah, and I didn't realise that either until I put that book on um, uh, onto Amazon. And then I thought, oh, you know, because I thought, let's, let's type in my name and see if it comes up. And I typed in Steve Brown in Amazon Books. And there's loads of other Steve Browns who've written books as well. I was like, oh, shit. But there's no one else who's called their book. You'd be nuts too. So, uh, but yeah, it's a comment. You're able to narrow it down. <laughs> well, Steve, I just want to say thank you, mate. I mean, we've been chatting for... I believe, let me check here. Is it three hours pretty much? Yeah. Um, people need to hear this. Like I said, you know, the book is, is brilliant. And, you know, you, you, I love the way that you combine funny stories with some of the more serious side of, you know, some of the struggles that you've been through. But, uh, it takes courage to come on and tell a story like this. Um, and I know it, it also takes a, a toll, you know, when I, when people relive this, when, you know, when, when you got emotional a few times, that's, that's the cost of, of telling your story, you know? And so I, I just want you to know, I, I appreciate you going to those places and, and telling it today because I know that the thousands of people that listen to this will be moved by it. And hopefully it will help not only steer them to maybe finding help if they're struggling themselves, but also reprogram that whole manliness bullshit that you and I were raised to believe. So thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story today. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. Appreciate your, uh, appreciate you listening and hopefully um yeah hopefully it helps someone in some way or yeah we could just try can't we like you say mate it's just uh it's a mindset it's a mentality you know that the whole man the fuck up mentality I, I just couldn't give a shit about it i just wish them people would just go fuck off you know it's like you know it's bullshit all the old school nonsense is just bullshit you know i don't care i, I know some real hard people Really, really hard as fuck people, uh, you know, and they're all right. They're they're open enough about their emotions and stuff. Uh, you know, they're the real tough guys, and it's normally these fucking whips, armchair warriors who, who say things like "man the fuck up," you know, who cares what they think anyway. Mm-hmm.